everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Apoll, Jim Laskowski, still on sabbatical, but I am joined by two fantastic guests. Uh, for this, the George A. Romero episode, I don't think you'll miss. You know what? I don't think you'll miss Jim. That's what I'm going to say. I'm just going to flat out, uh, <laughs> show's better off without him. I really miss you, Jim. Get better. Get well soon. Um, but let's go ahead and introduce our guests. Uh... Our first guest, uh, you of course know from uh, the High Lowbrow podcast, uh, James Gillum. James, welcome. Oh, thank you. Hello, Directors Club friends. Um, so, James, this is your first time on the episode? Yes. Uh, on uh, the show? Yeah, I think uh, my co-host Matt Gamble was on for the Brian De Palma episode. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he was on the Coen Brothers episode as well, or a similar, a similar type thing. Yeah, he he might have been. I know for sure he was on Brian De Palma because of yes. his, his white knuckle hatred for De Palma. Yeah, I I recall very well his his, <laughs> uh, his turn on the Brian De Palma. I think he played the role of bully on yeah. uh, on the Brian De Palma episode. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, it's a role he's comfortable with. Yeah, sure. No, no, he's he's a great guy. He's very easy yeah. to work with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like that, that sounds like kind of the. After you, after someone on Extra or Access Hollywood tells a story about Nicolas Cage and how crazy it was working with Nicolas Cage, where it's like, yeah, he didn't make eye contact with me at all. He was just very intense. He would come in and do a scene, and then he would leave. And oh no, but he was a great guy, really good, fun to work with, great <laughs> yes. actor, immense talent. Um, my second guest needs no introduction, so I won't uh, introduce yourself, Gabe. Hi, this is Gabe Powers, uh, writer of DVDActive.com, should be writer for Director's Club. I swear to God, I'm working on things. Yeah, I was going to say, the (laughs) former Director's Club columnist, now defunct column, possibly. I'm super busy, but I got ideas. There's ideas in this head. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, I've expressed before uh, my admiration for your ability to write DVD reviews well, which is, it's sort of a thankless task in a lot of ways um, because you do it really well and you really do get to the heart. Like I I like, I like reading your views. Even like I I was, I was reading through some of your reviews the other week and uh, I like read your prom night review and I, and this is how I know you're a good writer is because I agreed with everything you said about prom night, except I liked it way more than you. So (laughs) the the actual specifics of that movie, uh, I thought you were right on the money and really uh, summed up well, except that like where you landed on it was not as favorable as me. Yeah, Um, that's, I try to do that. I I find that the movies I like that everybody else hates, I end up uh, uh, disliking all the exact same things they do and still liking the movie. So, you know, gotta be honest. Sure, sure. But um, in, in addition to all of the writing that you do, you actually have a, a, a new venture. Yes, me and Phil uh, Nobile it, uh, are trying to sell T-shirts uh, that I'm designing and that his uh, you know, enormous wealth is going towards printing. Uh, <laughs> you know, those, those uh, lifetime uh, documentary checks. Oh my God! Well, I mean, They're once like you out, out one, the door, big. Yeah, sure. Once you, once you make Inside Halloween, 
They're good. Yeah. That's just a perennial. They play that all the time. It's like I love the '80s. Uh, that's all they. Right. Ever he doesn't play. really. He doesn't really work anymore. He just lives off residuals. <laughs> right. From what I understand. Um, I I bet he does though. Just get those kinds of checks that you hear about, where he gets a check for like twenty six cents. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> like the yeah, those like just residual checks. You're like, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. You just pile them up until you have a dollar. Yeah, do the laundry. <clears throat> um, but yeah, we're calling it uh, because the first shirt is they live themed. We called it Obey, Consume, and Buy T-shirts. And right now we are only on Facebook and accepting orders through private message and PayPal at uh, facebook.com slash obey consume by t-shirts. That's you guys, you guys, you're exclusive to Facebook. You have an exclusivity deal. And and we had a run of only 50 shirts. So, right. These are limited edition shirts and super, and Gabe, a really, really great artist. In addition to doing the director's club logo, he's also done a lot of really amazing art and paintings um, and stuff. And you're, and it, the, uh, if you are a fan of like horror or cult uh, movie t-shirts that aren't just the the poster on a shirt, um, things that are a little more subtle, the uh, his the they live shirt. I like that because it's it's sort of uh, smiley faces that are slowly uh, sort of subtly revealed as if uh, wearing the glasses to be sort of the aliens from They Live. <sighs> As as uh, uh, Phil calls it, it's a subtle, evocative, and 100% non-actionable design. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's so important, that last part. Yes. Well, yes. That sounds interesting. And if you go to the Facebook page, um, uh, someone who bought one of the shirts uh, took a picture with uh, Noah Segan, uh, who uh, was in Looper, uh, episode of uh, House. He's He's totally in a picture. He's not wearing the shirt, but... He's standing next to the, sitting next to the guy wearing the shirt. Shirt sure. friend think, of uh, Badass Digest, sick. Noah Segan. Yes, and we and yeah, we also Phil got pictures of uh, of uh, Roddy Piper holding it up. Uh, he looks really pissed in the picture, but he's he Phil assured me he is making his uh, his heel face from his. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Phil, yeah. Phil, of course, was the episode uh, was the guest on the first John Carpenter episode, I believe. Um, could have been part John Carpenter part two. I honestly can't recall. But um, anyway, he was uh, the first Phil, one. He was the first one. I remember. Yeah, and uh, and the William Friedkin episode. So former yes. former guest Phil also um, part of this. So yeah, go check it out. Uh, Facebook dot com slash obey uh, consume by t uh, okay. by t shirts. Yeah, obey consume no by t shirts. Um. Sweet. I have no real business to take care of. By the time you hear this, I don't think we're going to be accepting submissions, uh, any more top ten lists for the horror episode. Hopefully by the time you hear this, the bonus episode is either out already or fast approaching. So um, stay, in, stay, uh, stay tuned in for that. Um, but that still needs to you – know, we have to go through the, the bother of actually recording it. Uh, right now, I just have a really sweet Google Doc full of <laughs> over a hundred movie horror movie titles uh, because none of you uh, people seem to agree on any of these. Um, but uh, it's going to be fun. So, but it, uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's too late to uh, submit a list to that. 
So um, let's go ahead and just go right into what we watched this week. James, we like to start with the guests first, and since you are the most uh, new of the guests, I, I decided we should go ahead and uh, start with you. All right. Well, I've got um, uh, a what what I watch list and a sort of quasi um, plug at the same time. Uh, Matt and I are releasing a Halloween episode. Hopefully, we'll get it up by the thirty first. We recorded it last weekend, and uh, since this isn't coming out till after Halloween, I can reveal that it's uh, it's. Um, a challenge episode where we take each other on and uh, argue over the vampire genre. So I've watched a handful of genre or vampire genre films these last these last week or so. Um, my favorite of which were uh, Blackula and Scream, Blackula Scream. Um, I thought those were just excellent. Uh, I watched them because I thought they paid homage to the the earlier vampire films, a sort of foundation films of the genre and uh william marshall whom you may recognize as the king of cartoons from peewee's big peewee's uh playhouse he was blackula uh, and it was great uh, of course i checked out it's the great pumpkin charlie brown last week is there a vampire in that no no i'm sorry there isn't uh i think the closest thing is uh lucy's witch mask might have fangs but i don't think there are any vampires in it but I, I I didn't watch that for the episode just uh, just because it was on and I watch it every year. I so hmm, I never watched any Charlie Brown special ever. I feel weird revealing that, but I just yeah that was never a thing I did. D- did do they meet the Great Pumpkin or does it is it I don't know how true these TV specials stay to the comic. Um. Well, spoiler alert. They. They do do not meet the Great Pumpkin. Okay, so it's like the comic. Yeah, it turns out to be um, Snoopy in a cape. And they think they found the Great Pumpkin. Uh, Linus and Sally are in the pumpkin patch all night waiting for the Great Pumpkin. Uh, The only thing to appear is Snoopy in a cape. Okay. I can't remember, (laughs) is he trolling them or is it just an honest mistake? 
No, I think he he's uh, he's out playing on his doghouse, being the Red Baron, and um, he winds up in the pumpkin patch on his way home. And poor Linus thinks he's seen the great pumpkin, and he faints. And Sally is outraged. <laughs> um, but yeah, great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I also checked out Testament. This is a non-vampire film. It's a, I think, nineteen eighty-three film. Uh, starring William Devane, a uh, realistic portrayal of what would happen if there were a nuclear attack uh, on the west coast of the United States. This sort of follows the lives in the small town south of San Francisco, I think it was. And um, very haunting film. Something that I think would qualify as a horror film, but you wouldn't find sitting on the shelf, the horror shelf, of your video store if such a thing existed anymore. Okay, so this isn't the Ty West movie. This th- no. this one this one came out around like the same time as the day after, right? The day after and also the uh UK one was Threads. Yes. Yes, I um I'm a fan of all those films. Um and Testament was one I had a real hard time tracking down, but Yeah, it's hard it, to find. I I hope they'll do something with it on Blu-ray because I think it's deserving of it but it was not on dvd for ages and then it was for a short time but the price was real high on amazon so it took a while to track down was this a theatrical yeah. which of these were tv movies um, uh, threads and day after i believe are both tv movies okay yeah. so testament was the theatrical i, I... think so yeah yeah it, I, I, it was a theatrical release featured i think very young kevin cosner was in it before he became such a big star. Yeah. But Lucas it, Haas and William Devane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It I don't it doesn't have like it's not as well known as the other two films, but I think it's because it wasn't on TV probably. It's like everybody saw the other two um and was disturbed by them. And I think that nobody went and saw the theatrical one, so it didn't get as well known. Mm. But definitely worth your time if you're if you're into uh the day after and threads um definitely worth checking out. But other than that I just my annual October viewing of Night of the Living Dead uh the 1968 original version and it tied in with our, our episode here beautifully so I watched that as well. Sure. What what vampire movies did you watch? Well, Blackula, uh, Scream, Blackula, Scream, um, the original 1922 Nosferatu by F.W. Murnau. Um, I watched the sort of remake, uh, Nosferatu the Vampire. Uh, I think it was 79. That one came out by Herzog. Sure. Mm-hmm. Directed by Herzog. And, um, oh, Horror of Dracula, Terrence Fisher film. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think I also watched uh, rewatched the 2012 Dark Shadows spoof for the, the we what we did was we traced the life of life cycle of a genre, in the sort of genre theory, and parody is the second to last part of the life cycle, and so I watched watched Dark Shadows for that, and it was a rewatch. I enjoyed it more the second time around. You know what I heard? I heard recently Dracula dead and loving it. Which I had always just been like heard as oh it's just the the really like the last movie Mel Brooks made it's a horrible you know as Mel Brooks kind of got worse and worse as his career went on I heard Dracula Dead Loving It is actually like super detailed sort of point by point parody of 
Todd Browning's Dracula. The, yeah, the guy who wrote it, um, the only other thing he seems to do is commentary tracks for Universal Horror Movies. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I He comes up all the time. Every time I'm reviewing a Blu-ray and it has a commentary track by a quote-unquote expert, it's usually either him or Kim Newman. <clears throat> I can't remember his name off the top of my head, though. It's still a pretty terrible movie, I mean. No, I, I, I don't <laughs> doubt it. I don't... It's, like, Mel Brooks wasn't good towards the end of his career, and Leslie Nielsen kind of got worse and less serious towards the end of his career. Yeah. Not not that, like, the movie he started off... I mean, he actually did start off making serious movies, but not that the comedies he started making, like, were serious comedies. But he took them super seriously, and that was what made him great. Right. And then... He, he even did a George Romero serious role. Of course he did. Of course, he can hold his yeah. breath for a very long time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that was post airplane too. That was was creep yeah, was Creepshow. So. No, Creepshow was pre police police squad. Yes. yes. Okay. For sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Did, is there a reason you chose those like specific movies or? Well, we we cha- um, I came to Matt with the idea. of of just tracing the life cycle of the vampire genre a couple of months ago. And he's always keen on putting a sort of competition angle on things to sort of keep in with our, our normal high and lowbrow podcast episodes where we, we sort of debate back and forth, but, and decide which is the high and low brow film that we've picked for the theme. And, um, so I picked the ones I thought would represent each, each part of the life cycle, Best and then uh, Matt's lovely wife, Mrs. Angela Fabrini, um, was judge and decided who came up with the best film choices. It's very exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah, that sounds complicated. That also sounds very unscientific. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. tell you how to do a competition, <laughs> but I think you need more. You need more judges. One, you need more impartial judges too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it it was fun. It yeah. Uh, I think we'll we'll try and do something again for another horror genre next next October if if we're so inclined. But I I I, I hope that the listeners will enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. Um. So, Gabe, what 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 have you watched recently? Well, it's uh, Halloween season, and that's usually what I end up having to watch for reviews. Um. And I was gonna. I was going to talk about the Nightbreed director's cut, but I am such an awful authority on that one because I never really liked it. So I honestly, I, I could barely tell you what the differences were other than I liked the director's cut a lot more. I think we, talk, we talked about the, or me and Jim, I should say, ended up talking about the Nightbreed director's cut a little in it, it was uh, the Cabal on like cut. the Wes this is Anderson episode, actually. Yeah, this recently. is like a whole new cut. Of the, oh, okay. Of no, we so we talked about the Cabal cut, which is what yeah, we the saw. Yeah, Cabal cut's insanely in long. This is a two-hour version. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So basically, and basically where I, where I came down on it because I had I've actually just last month I I reread uh, Books of Blood by Clive Barker, which is one of my favorite short story collections, and yeah. it's there's something like that it loses like there's some things of Clive Barker's. Uh, work that translates well in a film, but his sort of unique vision of monsters. Yeah, especially, 
it almost requires really extensive, expensive CG effects right. to work, which didn't exist. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, if you are the, you know, if you're a makeup effects, uh, you know, dork, that and you just you just love the prosthetics and stuff. There's tons of monsters, and that's yeah, that's cool. And about there's it. more. There's more in the director's cut. I know that for sure from listening to the commentary track. They focus a lot more on the monsters. Yeah, but that. God, I mean, to be, to be fair, uh, I, I, read, I think I read Cabal. I, I've never read it. It's, I, it's not exactly a, t- a tight. Uh, sort of uh, resonant kind of a story that has lots of really interesting themes um, that to my recollection, like it's yeah. it, 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 the, the best version of it is probably not, uh, you know, the best film possible film version is probably not going to be great. Well, the one thing I came away from it, no realizing is that it's sort of like Clive Barker's X-Men. Yeah, and once I got to that point, I started enjoying it more, and the fact that it really it leaves it—it's it, really leading into a sequel that never got made. And I started to enjoy it more on that level. That there is kind of this comic booky superhero thing going on, but it's with gross Clive Barker stuff. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, what what else have you watched? Well, okay, and then I watched Dolls, which is one of my, I think, most very. Very high on my personal favorite list. It's a uh, underrated uh, Stuart Gordon movie that he made. Actually, technically filmed it between Reanimator and uh, <clears throat> um, From Beyond, but it didn't get released until well after From Beyond. Um, and nobody liked it when it came out because it it's really kind of aimed at kids. It's like almost like an episode of Goosebumps or something like that, and. It's just gory enough that it's not appropriate for kids, but it's not salacious like Reanimator and uh, From Beyond, and it has nothing to do with Lovecraft. So when it came out, everybody hated it. But it's a really fun kind of Tales from the Crypt uh, morality tale, and it's really short. Like, with credits, it's 77 minutes long. Yeah, I was was about to say, the television episode thing tracks, because I was looking at the IMDb page. It's, It's really short. It's super short. And it, and it just sticks to what it does, and it's just about how they go to this house and asshole adults get attacked by dolls, and children and adults with the hearts of children don't get attacked by dolls. And that's, I mean, it's it's really great. Um, and an easy watch. It's not an important movie like Reanimator. It's not. It's nothing life changing about. It. It's like something he made in a weekend. And it's it's that's okay. So, what makes it one of your personal favorites? Just because it's such an easy movie to watch. It's just a really fun, simple movie, and it's and it's something I feel like I could watch with other people that don't like horror movies because it's not full of jump scares and there's a little bit of violence, but it's not particularly gory. Um, and it, it's colorful, and the performances are really good in a weird way. Like the the comedy is is really uh, uh, dry, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, I think maybe I also might just like it just because it got so shit on when it came out that I kind of feel like I need to defend it. Sure. Um, Then I watched Squirm, which I'm sure everybody knows Squirm, the worm movie. I love Squirm. Squirm for me might be 
<laughs> for adults, it's for you. As far as well, I feel the need to uh, defend, defend it because it got on Mystery Science Theater and everybody thinks it's shit, but it really isn't. Have you it's, seen Squirm? I have not. No, it, it's genuinely icky. <laughs> it, it's it's so so. Squirm is a movie about <laughs> it's it's number one. It's funny because it. It's about this city kid who comes down to rural wherever, I guess, like Georgia or it's Georgia. Yeah. Um, because he had like his, he's long-term boyfriend of someone or he's long-term like long distance friend of some, like what is his relationship with the girl in that movie? Exactly. You know, they're, I just watched it and they just sort of announced that he's coming to town and the other guy gets jealous, and I don't recall them ever explaining what their actual, how they knew. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of. I'm but pretty it's, sure they. But it's kind of it's kind of charming because yeah, because they're just like they're both kind of dorks. So it's about these like two dorks who like each other, but there's it's sort of a will they won't they romantic thing, which works about as well as that sort of thing ever works in a, in a horror movie. Which is you care a little bit, and that is enough to get you in between the s- scenes without the worms. And that's the other. And that's but that's the real the real thrill of Squirm is there's just millions of real gross worms all over the place. Uh, just you, they just well ha, 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 it's a it's a testament to practical effects and and to. Just like, well, how they how they fill that house with worms? So it's like, well, they fill the house with worms. Yeah, there's there's some rubbery ones, but it doesn't matter when. It's one of those movies where you you can see the effects if you're especially in HD, but it doesn't matter because the idea is there. Yeah, at, at least for me, as long as the idea and I understand that there are things crawling and worms crawling all over to the point where they're sinking a house. That's. <laughs> I don't need a lot more realism than that to be squigged out by that. Fantastic. And then, but it, so, so it has that element of just the thing that you want, the, like the, the sort of the, the base level thing you want out of an exploitation movie is, okay, show me something that I can't get anywhere else, you know? And that, and squirm definitely delivers on that just as far as all the worms. But then it also has those other elements that make those kinds of movies fun where there's just weirdness to it. There's just like randomly a guy, the the killer worms burrow inside his face and he kind of becomes a worm zombie. Like sort of. Yeah. Yeah. He runs around the rest of the movie. It's not really explained how he lost his mind or if they're controlling his mind because they burrowed into it. You know what they said? This is the best thing about DVDs and stuff is they had a making of, and Mm -hmm. they said that that actor was so method that he was depressed that he couldn't, figure out how to think like a worm (laughs) yeah like the other actors are just like they're laughing about it thinking about how depressed he was that he couldn't think like a worm oh man that's so good that's the best possible thing you could hope for in a movie like this is to have a prominent role for a method non-actor Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like method actors are are good. Method actors can get results. Method actors, you know, can get cinema history. But a method non-actor, you're just going to see something fucking bizarre yeah. <laughs> on screen. Yeah, and I mean every, uh, the other thing I noticed watching it again is is how much jaws and the birds 
inform the characters that the the lead guy is very clear. He's he's like afraid of the exact thing he has to deal with. He's a, specifically afraid of worms in the same way that Brody is specifically afraid of water. And then there's this um, mother that they can't tell that there's killer worms everywhere because she's might die of a heart attack or something if she gets any bad news. Who's sort of like uh, a super. Uh, it, hyperbole version of the mother from the birds that they're trying to kind of keep cool the whole movie of the birds and i hadn't i hadn't noticed that before it was clearly what they used as their model as nature movies i saw this as a i saw this at the at the music box of horrors with jeff lieberman in attendance um so that was that's obvious that's like he's great too man he's hilarious yeah he's a really fun guy he um he I, he went on to make uh, Satan's Little Helper, right? Yeah, I never saw that, but right after Squirm, he made two really underrated great movies. One's uh, Blue Sunshine, which is about uh, bad acid making people and uh, hippies into crazy killers. And then uh, Just Before Dawn, which is one of my all-time favorite slasher movies. Oh, I just saw, for the first time, I saw Just Before Dawn at, the, uh, at, this, at this year's Music Box of Horrors. That's right, oh, that is go. the same Jeff Lieberman. That's yeah. a that's a terrific slasher movie, and and you can kind of see Squirm in that movie. It's like they could take place down the street from each other. It's true, and and the last so when I saw Squirm uh, at that festival, and I think I don't think this is an actual like insightful thing. I think this is literally just entirely informed by the fact that the lead girl in Squirm, her sister has this weird accent that no one else has. Mm-hmm. Like she's talking like she's from Maine or something. They were all no. Uh, I learned these things. They're like all from Maine. Apparently, they're the Maine area. They're from from up north. Okay, so like she's the only one who really could not ditch the accent yeah. at all. Yeah, her and the New York guy couldn't pull it off. So they kind of, from what I understand, the way they were explaining it, they kind of wrote in that he was from New York because he was having trouble with that. Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. So, so yes, so basically she has this main accent, so then that had me thinking about Stephen King, and this almost feels like a tossed-off Stephen King short story. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, or, or, like, maybe even a Richard Bachman novel. Like, yeah. definitely not something he'd be proud of, but, like, yeah, just one of those things that he would have tossed off in the 80s. Right. right. Um, where if he wrote it, there would have just been, like, entire chapters from the perspective of the worms. It would or, like, keep going back. To, and there'd be and there'd be like one scene that was like just too disturbing and like you kind of are a little pissed at him for writing it just <laughs> just like one thing that that happens that's just gross yeah like gro- but gross in the not fun way right and you're just like come on man that didn't belong there oh yeah. man I've been I've been reading um I've been reading uh, dance uh, dance macabre for the first time which is Stephen King's uh, nonfiction book about sort of his thoughts on horror as a genre. And it's, but he wrote it like in the very early, like he wrote it, I think he finished writing it in 79. It was released like 80 or 81. Um, so, you know, it's his thoughts on the genre and he covers specifically the horror genre from 1950 to 1979. Um, and it's really funny to sort of hear how he talks about his own work and sort of regards himself uh, as a writer like before he got to make all of those just sort of like not necessarily terrible or or even poorly written like books in the 80s but just kind of like dashed off weirdness 
You know, like like this is before he ever. Half-assed. What's that? Half-assed books. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're half-assed. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is before he ever like went into a weird fugue state and came out with Cujo. Right. <laughs> or Tommy Knockers. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's funny to sort of read it. Like he he sort of thinks of himself very highly, you know. Because at that point, I think he only had like four books out. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like Squirm a lot. What else, what else have you seen? Well, the other one that, that I thought of when James said he was watching vampire movies is I finally hold on, I got adjusted. I finally got around to seeing uh, "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" by John Hancock. Not a uh, relation. That's a great uh, movie. I, it's one of those movies that's every book you read about the genre says you have to see this movie. Nobody talks about it. And all your friends that are excited about movies all talk about it. And I just never got around to seeing it until uh, a couple days ago. Jim, Jim Laskowski actually gave me that DVD. I, I'm looking at it right now. It's, uh, I still haven't watched it. it. Yeah, it's one of those movies that you just, I, I just put off. I don't know why. And, and it's – I'm trying to remember uh, you, you posted something – that you liked on Letterboxd that reminded me of it, and now I'm trying... Did you... Was it Messiah Evil? No. It was, uh... Oh, man. Targets? No, no, not Targets. Uh, uh, Carnival of Souls. Carnival it's of Souls. Kinda, oh, so it reminds me of... I love Carnival a, of Souls, one of my absolute favorite movies ever. What if, you know, it's kind of got a... What if the guy who made Carnival of Souls tried to make a new Hollywood movie in the 70s? Kind of vibe to it to me. Well, that's all I want. All I wanted is for Herc Harvey to go on <laughs> and make more films. Like, that's that's yeah, the, that's the it, tragedy for me of Herc Harvey is that he only made the one. Yeah, and it, and so it's got that kind of like like dreamy quality, and then you add the very uh, down to earth filmmaking style and a weird weird storyline that that is one of those things where you have to figure it out for yourself. They only once actually used the word vampire if I'm remembering correctly and it says it off like a joke at a point in the movie where if you don't know a lot about the movie you would never think it had anything to do with vampires and you might even make the entire way through the movie and still not put together that it's a sideways kind of vampire story it was it was interesting I mean I guess I wouldn't watch it if I was sleepy just because it's so dreamy and weird that it might kind of conk you out like it would be a bad one to show at the end of your uh your uh, 24 hour horror fest. Sure. Well, last one I went to, they the audition was the last movie. That's a terrible movie to put at the end of that. Yeah. That's really mean. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. That's awful. So that, that but, was on purpose. Yeah, no. They they had a weird programming uh this year. Like I feel like the way that the movies were sequenced, there's a certain amount of they had their hands tied because they had guests and therefore the the guest is the one their movies have to play on prime time because you don't you don't want to like fly a director in and then say all right now wait until 3 in the morning right so it's sort of the really crazy fun stuff kind of got out of the way quickly and then um there's there is some uh, much like uh, after uh, the borrower, the uh, John McNaught movie, uh, which is great, uh, or yeah, it, I, very fun at least, um, they played the Herzog's Nosferatu, and that was just like super slow. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but James, you've you've seen uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Oh, I have. Yeah, I I saw it in my late teens on VHS. I have real fond memories of it. It's uh, it's a unique film. I like uh, Gabe's idea that it is sort of her Carvey, <laughs> her Carvey esque because I'm a I'm a terrific yeah. fan of Carnival of Souls as well. Um, and I love Jess, let's scare Jessica to death. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't really, I haven't watched it in a while, but, um, I, I do recall it being very frightening and atmospheric to my, say, 16 year old eyes. Yeah. The, the other one I saw way before recently, so it doesn't really count for this that I also think Patrick should watch is uh, Messiah of Evil. <clears throat> which is another one I had put off watching forever, which is two zombies, what Let's Scare Jessica to Death is to vampires. What, so what is Messiah? It's, what is Messiah of Evil? It, it's uh, kind of... Uh, did you ever see the movie uh, uh, Buried Alive? Uh, or no, Dead and Buried. Did you ever see the movie Dead and Buried? I think, uh, I, I, think I saw part of it and it was too late and then I fell asleep. It's like that where it's like a town where things are going wrong and the, okay. more, the more you learn about the town, the more it, it's, it's another really dreamy one with uh, really detached kind of storytelling and, and weird. The characters are kind of hard to <laughs> differentiate in a way. And it kind of, it turns into this really off key kind of zombie movie in the end. And you don't really even notice that it's being a zombie movie until it's almost over. But I'd recommend that one, too. Cool. What uh, else did you see at the thing this year? Okay, so, yeah, la- last episode I got to talk about the Music Box of Horrors, um, where I-, I saw, I can give you a whole list right here, Phantom Carriage, Cat People, Curse of the Werewolf, The Borrower, Nosferatu, The Vampire, uh, Dead Snow 2, Just Before Dawn... Uh, an audition. Um, so I talked a little bit about that on the last episode, but there there was a second 24 hour horror film festival uh, that I went to the following weekend, um, which I, I didn't. I wasn't able to stay through the whole thing uh, that time. Uh, I was kind of feeling sick by the time I even got there, so I only stuck around until 3 a.m. But I did get to see. Um, uh, some or uh, other than uh, Trick or Treat, all m- movies I had never seen before. Uh, so I got to see The Unknown uh, with uh, Lon Chaney and uh, um, Joan Crawford, which is great. Oh, sure. Is that the one where he's the knife thrower? Yeah, the with with the he's supposedly has no arms, but he actually is. Basically, he's a murderer hiding out in a circus. And as someone with no arms, that way the police can't fingerprint him. Right. <laughs> um, it's it's really effective. I think the circus plays to Todd Browning's uh, strengths. And uh, Lon Chaney, you know, Lon Chaney is an actor I'd always just known. I'd seen him in Phantom of the Opera. And I'd seen him in uh, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And, you know, in both of those, he has very intense, you know, facial makeup on. So the this uh, the unknown was actually the first movie where I saw where he is it's still a very physical performance because he's doing so much with his feet. Um, in fact, like actually I couldn't tell. There were certain things like 
he like he lit his own cigarette with his feet and he was just like smoking it as he was acting like uh like he was acting out a scene but while he was acting out a scene he was lighting the cigarette and smoking it with his feet and i couldn't tell if it was like a special effect or like someone's hands like because he was sitting down in an easy chair so it's possible they could have had you know other people's limbs go up and doing all that or you know maybe he's just that talented a physical actor that he can do those kinds of crazy circus tricks but um, he was pretty method like before it was a thing yeah so <laughs> so, it's so he's so uh, it's a very physical performance you know like the kind of thing you associate with Lon Chaney but he actually has like this amazing expressive face and he gets across so much malice and dread um and terror just in sort of his the faces he makes and sort of a creepy smile he'll have um as he is sort of a predator on Joan Crawford there's a really weird great sexual thing tension where he's kind of friend zoned because basically Joan Crawford is this beautiful circus woman um, and she has a phobia of men's hands <laughs> because she's been pawed at all her life uh, by men. So she can't be with a man who has arms. But So she feels safe and comfortable around Lon Chaney's character because she doesn't know he has arms. But he also can't get close to her and hold her. <laughs> or, you know, obviously he can't get, you know, naked and make love to her if, if if he has to wear this sort of contraption that hides the fact that he has arms. So it's this sort of thing where he's uh, sort of tied down and restricted. Um, so it, it has that very grand, big arc, uh, arch sign kind of uh, sexual metaphors going on. Um, it's a really cool movie and it's and it's well paced. I mean, as far as Todd Browning movies go, I'd put it above Dracula. I'd say it's it's not as good as Freaks, but it's it's good, and I'd say it's worth seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I never never did see it. I finally saw and this is a movie I think you talked about, uh, Gabe, last year, The Haunted Palace with Vincent yeah. Price. That was new to me last year. I had never actually seen it. Yeah, that well, that was that came out as part of the Vincent Price box set, right? Right, the first one. They have a, a new one this year, which wasn't as good, but still pretty good. Awesome. I, I, I still got to get both. Cause, uh, so I saw a 35mm print of The Haunted Palace. But the thing about this festival is opposed... So the Music Box of Horrors, that is done on, put on by the Music Box. And they sort of have more connections because they are just a repertory theater. Um, and they tend to get good-looking prints. And they have like you know professional, really good projectionists. Um, and so the movies always look good. Like, you know, Nosferatu looked amazing this year. The print of Just Before Dawn was really good. Pretty much the only print that was severely degraded at all was uh, Nightmare and Damaged Brain, uh, which well, I, w- I, I was not able to stay awake for uh, anyway, just because when it was on. You, you know what? Uh, even as a Fulci fan, that that that's a it's not a good movie. <laughs> Is that a Fulci movie? It's. Nightmare and a Damage. Oh wait, 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 wait! I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of uh, night. Uh, crap! Now I can't think. No, Nightmare and a Damage Brain is Scavati or Scavellini. Scavellini. Oh yeah, that's that's also kind of a bad movie, but a much more enjoyable bad movie than the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Cat in the Brain. So now. Oh, Cat in the Brain, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, Nightmare and the Damage Brain had that sort of old print thing where it was pinkish. Um, right and didn't look too good, but every, all the ones the prints there were really good looking. 
um, the music box, or not the music box massacre, just the massacre that played at the Portage Theater in a different neighborhood. The people who put that on are Terror in the Isles, and they do a lot of sort of horror movie, rep screening, double features, sci-fi movie kind of events throughout the year. And they just kind of are worse at putting on a festival. Like, there's weird, there's weird little... So in addition to the fact that the Haunted Palace just didn't look particularly good, like, it was also just misaligned a lot of the time, and it felt, like, out of focus sometimes. Like, it felt like it was a bad print that was too dark, plus it wasn't projected properly. Kind of like that that uh, 3D movie thing where, like, the, the, um, the colors are misaligned when... <clears throat> Yeah, a, a little bit. It was it was more that it was just it wasn't cropped correctly. Like oh, okay. thing like you you can always it's always a bad sign when you're uh, watching a movie and then the opening credits start and you can can't see the first three letters of any of the opening yes. credits. <laughs> yeah, it's just oh well I, I don't they they got yeah. their uh, stoner friend to be the projectionist I suppose, um, which is probably me being unkind. I'm sure the Terror and the Owls have been doing it long enough. I'm sure that you know they're doing the best they can and. You know whatever problems they had were legitimate problems, and but it, at at any rate, uh, I don't know. In, in addition to just projection things, there are a lot of things that bugged me. Like they're just not as good at hosting. Like just three different people would come out before a movie would start and yell a thing. Like, <laughs> Here's they didn't, a fucking they, movie. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, pretty much. Like they didn't really introduce it. They didn't really set it up. They're just like, hey, everybody, doing good. <laughs> <laughs> is everybody excited to see Deadly Spawn? <laughs> okay, like, like it was it, like no one. They, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't quite as good. Um, also, like there were just some movies that in between the movies they didn't turn the lights on in the theater, so uh. people would be like stumbling around trying <laughs> to find their seats and like have their their phones out and they would just be like bumping into people. Because the lights weren't on, even though there was no movie like on the screen, like it was shit like that. That was just oh okay, well whatever. So Haunted Palace has a lot of really cool things going for it, but there were also just several scenes where I couldn't see shit at all. Um, yeah, it's pretty dark. It looked good on Blu-ray though. If you ever get that set, you'll be able to tell what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I really should just get that set because I love the I, the scene where uh, Vincent Price and his uh, fiance or his wife. They're in town, and then all of those deformed people sort of slowly, yeah, uh, like come around them. That was amazing. The weird love, Lovecraftian creature at the end, um, like the like the glimpses you get of it. That was really evocative and cool. Yeah, the uh, green light, the constant kind of green light on everybody. Yeah. So there are cool things about Haunted Palace, but I just I didn't really see it properly. Um. Also. Not a great print and kind of poorly projected, but uh, a much brighter movie and a movie that, uh, like, its power worked well through any problems the the Terror in the Isles might have had was Targets, which I had never seen before. Yeah, and I haven't seen that in so long. Uh, God, tar- it is it is one of the bleakest, most, like, it just, it, oh my God, my skin was crawling the whole time. So, so Targets is a movie. It's it's sort of two stories that kind of dovetail at the end. And the first is about Boris Karloff playing, you know, a thinly concealed version of Boris Karloff, in which who doesn't want to do horror movies anymore. He feels outdated. He feels like a dinosaur. Um, and 
he's sort of quitting this project he's working on to re- to retire suddenly. Meanwhile, Peter Bogdanovich, who directed Targets, also plays the director of his film of this character's film. And so Peter Bogdanovich, who's a you know a fine actor on his own, uh, is sort of trying to convince him to you know to keep his career and that this next movie is going to be really the good one. This is the next movie is going to show that he has more range, that he's not just a monster. And they get a lot of mileage out of just showing a bunch of Roger Corman like footage from the the terror. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, it was one of those it was one of those Corman films that was basically free, I think. Yeah. I think almost all the production cost was covered by some other movie. I think that Karloff Karloff's paycheck was like the only thing they actually had to take a hit on. If I remember right, yeah, like they basically it was it was okay. So in the, we have Karloff for five days, yeah. write something around these five days. Um, and what Peter Bogdanovich did was he has this thing where so it's these two stories dovetail. Now the second story is just about a man, uh, a married man, and him and his wife live with her parents, um, and he's just a man who plans and executes uh, a killing spree uh, and just starts going on a shooting rampage. Um, Obviously, you know, it's not the sort of thing that never happened in 1968 when the movie came out, um, but it's certainly the sort of thing that happens much more now than it did then. Uh, So there's certain, just seeing him perched atop this sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a grain silo or a chemical plant or something, but he he goes on this industrial structure by the freeway, and he just starts picking off car after car, and he just more, like it, it's it's the sort of scene that you don't expect to go on so long because it's so it's so gross and creepy and and horrific, and it just keeps going and going. And Peter Bogdanovich does this really amazing thing with a movie where. It's it's really a really flat movie. Like at first I thought he just had no budget, which is true. I mean, he didn't really have much of a budget. But I just thought like it, it just looks terrible. Like it's just the camera angles are very flat and all the interiors and the, the house and everything are just in all the domestic scenes with this character. Like they just the 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 recording, they're just not very dynamic and they're kind of very dull. But then in that in that same scene when he starts killing people like it start, It just becomes just stomach churning. Like it is, it, it. I just had my jaw on the floor the entire time I was watching Targets. It's an amazing movie. Yeah, I got to rewatch it. I guess that one is eluded um, me. I I really would like to track that one down. It's it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's. I mean, especially now, like just you know, like I mean, it, and like. You know, in a you know, like that you know that shooting, uh, you know that shooting spree at that in that theater in Aurora, Colorado, like happened, and then the end scene of this movie takes place at a drive-in. Oh. You know, where there it's a drive-in where uh, Boris Karloff's character is sort of making his final appearance, and they're watching this. You know, they're watching this cheesy kind of gothic horror movie. You know, the kind of Corman, Edgar Allan Poe camp. Uh, uh, that you know that that variety of film. I mean, they're literally watching the terror with Jack Nicholson and and Boris Karloff, but you don't see enough of it to really identify it as anything other than just you know like the kind of Edgar Allan Poe movies that Corman was making at the time. 
And then that, of course, contrasted with these people. Uh, and it's kind of a brilliant scene because these people are getting picked off. The, the shooter's hiding right behind the screen. But because they all have their speakers in their cars turned up so loud, they don't hear the gunshots. And they don't – like it's – you get this – the sequence is incredible. And it's basically slowly as he's just shooting people in their cars – the people in the cars next to them start to take notice and panic, and sometimes they get shot and sometimes they don't. But a, but like very gradually and very subtly in a very uh, amazing way, just through sort of the power of Peter Bogdanovich's editing, like you ha- you see this sort of you see the crowd slowly realize what's going on and sort of go into this hysteria and start fleeing the theater. Um, it's and and no explanation is ever given. They don't never give. They never give note one of this boy was unhappy or this this yeah. boy. The only the only little thing they give is that um, is that he was he was in Vietnam, um, but they don't. But there is no scene where he like has a nightmare about Vietnam. There's no scene where he has PTSD. Um, you know, you see him buying all these guns, and you have you see him in the the trunk of his car, but you don't. Like it, they don't make it any more overt than that. Like you, you get the idea that something's wrong with him, but it's not so direct that it's just like, well, of course he came back from Vietnam and he's doing this. Like it, it, it ends up being a lot more creepy than that, just because he, you, they don't put too much weight on that being the explanation. Um, so targets is amazing. Uh, I, I, it's one of those movies like I want to rewatch again, especially. I want to, like I don't know if that movie's on Blu-ray, but if it is, um, it's at least on DVD. I don't know if it's right. On I, I I want I want to see what it looks like when it is a not a bad print that's poorly projected. Like yeah. there's a there's a moment where he writes out a note, um, and the note is actually the only reason I know it's on the note is because it's the poster. It's the tagline for the poster, which is "I just killed my wife and my mother. I know they'll get me, but before that, many more will die." And that's the tagline of the movie. It's you know, right in the center of the, the movie poster. But there's a scene where the camera goes into the note and it stays on there for a long time. But because the film was so out of focus, I couldn't read the note. So, like, you know, little things like that. I want to see this movie again properly, but it's so disturbing that I, it's probably going to be a couple years before I can muster up the nerve to do it. <laughs> hmm. um, I also saw Chopping Mall, which is it's Chopping Mall. It's kind of a fun yeah. Kind of a fun horror comedy, but it's not particularly inspired in any way. No, it's a decent idea, at least. Um, I and then I saw Deadly Spawn, which is inspired. Deadly Spawn's a really fun movie. Um, yeah, Deadly Spawn's one of those good movies that where it's it the fact that it's super low budget is really obvious, um, but not only in ways that make it shitty, <laughs> like. Like there's all like all the hallmarks of a low budget, super low budget independent movie where it's just like the acting's a little stiff and you get the idea that these aren't you know that these are not very uh, experienced actors and you know the sound isn't great because almost a lot of it is done in post and stuff like that like there's little things you know when you watch a lot of these movies you're just like oh yeah it's a low budget movie but it also is just low budget and just how idiosyncratic it is and the weird things it does and you can just tell that there wasn't a studio head being like, all right, so we need this character. Like none of the characters really have arcs. So you don't waste a whole lot of time, like 
where it's like, all right, this character is established. They have a fear of worms or they have a fear of the water or whatever. Like they overcome that fear in this climactic scene. Like it's just this kind of movie where these alien creatures are taking over this house. Um, and it, it just, it feels messy and chaotic in a really appealing way. Uh, but it's like, total, it's, it's built around the, uh, the monster. Like somebody made that monster and they're like, they built a movie around it. Yeah. And it, and it couldn't move. That's the other thing. It has, the, the, the monster prop was too big to move. So not only did they build, build a movie around a monster, but they built a movie around a monster that can't leave its location. Well, they, 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 hide it. they hide it well just through the way it's yeah. edited and stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you know those, I mean, if you've been knowing these things, I think it's a pretty clever movie for, for what it is. Have you seen the Deadly Spawn? I have not. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's fine. It's fine. It's it's a. I I I didn't see it before uh, this festival. It was, it's a good one. Um, I think it's out of print. I think you can't even find it anymore. Really? I, I think that Synapse Films owns it though, so maybe they have a Blu-ray plan. I haven't heard anything yet though. I should have picked up. They had. They were selling ten dollars copies. Oh, I bet was I bet Synapse was actually there. They're always in Chicago when I go to that con out there. Oh yeah, I bet they had some like warehouse copies or something. That'd be cool. That would be cool. Yeah, I got a uh, I got the I got the poster from the festival, and both uh, Jim Wanowski, uh, who directed Chopping Mall, and uh, I forget who directed Deadly Spawn. Um, because I don't think the guy who directed Deadly Spawn, Douglas McKeown. Uh, he didn't really go on to do anything else. I I think he was a special effects guy, maybe, maybe. But yeah, I don't know for sure. He was a he was a fun, charming guy. Um, nope, yeah, that's the only movie he ever directed. Uh, well, actually, they he they got him to direct uh, a short for the festival. I so I got to see his only other. I got to be like one of. 120 people who has seen his only other movie, which is kind of a thrown together thing where a guy is drunk driving and he goes to a theater and then he sees the ghosts of a bunch of people he has killed drunk driving. And then, and then it turns into like a wacky PSA at the end of it. Like that's the twist is that it's a PSA for again about drunk driving, but nothing, nothing special. Certainly none of the charm of deadly spawn, but uh, it's at least fun to say that I've seen the other, you uh, saw it. D- Douglas McCown movie that is uh, not on IMDb or Letterboxd. Um, so I, I saw that. I saw uh, I saw like the first quarter and the last quarter of Black Christmas, uh, the original, and that seeing it on the big screen has finally made me want to go back and rewatch the. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, I went to get dinner during Black Christmas, so I didn't see the whole thing. Um, but I was never, I've never been a big fan of Black Christmas. It has a structure that I don't find appealing where um, it takes place over the course of several days and there's a lot of time spent with the cops who are investigating the murders. And it's just not a slasher structure that I've ever found super appealing. Um, and I remember being really bored by it. But catching the last, like, say, 20, 30 minutes of it um, on the big screen – it's really intense and like genuinely yeah. just frightening in a way that, you know, when, when you've seen a ton of horror movies and you see it in that context where it's a bunch of people who love horror movies and they're not going to get scared. Like you, it's just not a context where you get scared by movies, but I was really scared at the end of Black Christmas, not even 
having watched this, everything that came before it, just sort of the way it, Bob Clark shoots, like, hit the eye through the door frame and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. I got to go back and rewatch that uh, again. And I actually, I'll, I'll actually just, end up liking it. I just happened to find it in some uh, value bin on Blu-ray for, like, five bucks the other day. So <clears throat> I plan on rewatching it, too. Sweet. Yeah. Um, and then I saw Trick or Treat, which is, I liked more this time. Uh, I'm certainly not on board with the you know with those who think it's sort of a mon- uh, minor sort of modern classic. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of that is it should have gotten a a oh it it should have been released when it should have been released. Like it yeah. should have gotten a proper Absolutely. release. Um, yeah. That happens all the time with those. What's that, James? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you talking about the the anthology film from a few years ago? Yeah. Okay. Have you seen it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. I th- There's also another trick or treat, isn't there? From a with Gene Simmons or something from a yeah, few it's like years from ago? the eighties. It's like a, one. Of, it's a rock rock and roll horror sort of thing, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 That. Yeah, and I, I I think the the anthology film Trick or Treat was really was a terrific film. Um, I remember the performance by the the guy who played the dad from Happiness. Really. Yeah, Tony Baker. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was excellent. It's it, yeah, it's kind of him doing happiness again. Uh, so like, I like that segment, and I kind of like how everything dovetails into like it. It all ends up being kind of interconnected, and it messes with chronology. Uh, and like, I like I, I like the little creature they made, the little trick or treat. Oh yeah. Kid. I mean that I actually I found that in any uh in a uh, one of those claw machines. I couldn't believe oh. it. <laughs> I could get it, but I, I that, couldn't believe uh, that they made that. That creature has sort of had a life outside the I don't know if they're actually making a trick or treat too. I think it's one of those things that's been on IMDb rumored or whatever really? for years and years. I don't know if that's actually ever gonna happen, but that I know that creature is like I think they made a comic book series, like where maybe it's an anthology horror thing and he's like the host or something or like that, I think that it that that creature design is really good. The little kid, the little pumpkin-headed kid. Um, but I just there's it like the stories aren't that strong on their own. The like yeah. part of the nice thing about an anthology movie, like a real anthology movie, is you just um. You you just sort of settle in and you get told this short story, um, and the way that the stories get interwoven, it kind of it loses that charm, but it doesn't gain enough. Yeah, I'll buy that. Uh, I but mean, I enjoy I enjoyed it, but I'm uh, probably I'm pretty much on the same level as you were. I I enjoy it, but thought it got a little over overexposed. In the kind of geek communities. Sure. I, I think it's a good movie. But Cemetery Man. Now, Cemetery Man I saw for the first time. Oh, you had never seen that? <laughs> no, I've never seen it. I'm pretty oh. sure they just projected a Blu-ray. Probably. Um, uh, James, have you seen uh, Cemetery Man? Oh, yeah. I'm a real fan of Michelle Suave. Uh, I tracked that down back in my my glory days of VHS tape trading. Um, I think it was the Italian title was Della Morte, Della Mor, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, Del Morte, Del Morte. Yeah, and uh, oh. oh yeah, I'm a, I really love that. Um, 
cemetery, man. It's very accessible too to sort of tune your friends into Italian horror. It's a good place to start. I, I, okay, I will, I will, I will definitely accept that. As far as com- it's accessible compared to a lot of Italian horror, mm-hmm. in that it's it actually like it has really good performances, um, and it's funny um, in a way that a lot of Italian horror kind of pointedly doesn't have good performances um, <laughs> or and, jokes or yeah or jokes, um, but it's fucking weird. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like that was the thing I I was totally unprepared for because I I heard of Cemetery Man for years and years and I'm like okay so it's a horror comedy about a guy living with zombies I'm sure it's it's similar in the way it proceeds to something like Dead Alive where it's this guy and he's sort of maintaining this bunch of zombies and I knew there was a romance element so maybe it, there's like a pushing daisies sort of a thing where he brings back someone and he's in love and they tries to make it work even though she's dead like. I thought I just had an understanding of the tone and basic, the basic content of Cemetery Man because those were the elements that were in every synopsis I had ever read or in any like brief description of the film. Those were the only elements ever discussed. But those elements, like after the first 45 minutes or whatever, they just sort of get sidetracked. They are totally unimportant and it goes in a hundred crazy directions. It's almost an anthology film itself. Kind it really- of. <laughs> it really is, and and then by the end of it, like it goes, it sort of it it sort of enters weird levels of reality that I'm not sure. I'm not even sure what the end of it really means. I don't. I don't think anybody is. I think that <laughs> I don't think it's supposed to have any meaning. Almost, but it's it's incredible. It's yeah. I mean, the thing that it's great because okay, so yeah, like it kind of has a higher production value and a sense of humor. And really good performances. It feels more like a uh, Jean-Pierre Junot film. Like it feels more like Delicatessen. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, it, that, and that kind of makes a little bit of sense because Junot, uh, Gilliam, uh, you know, Junot has a kind of Gilliam thing. And before he started making that, uh, Suave had been Gilliam's second unit in Italy for a couple different movies if i remember right oh really so i think that he started picking up stuff because his early movies are total argento and argento was in production capacities on two of them and kind of ruled over them and they're still really cool movies but they don't feel as unique yeah gilliam is another touch i i didn't think about gilliam but you know de- definitely this movie also kind of has a a, a gilliam feel like a, a a brazil kind of yeah feel where it's it's wacky and it's funny, but it also just has real. It's really vicious and it has teeth. Yeah. Um. Actually, the Nagi character is totally in. Uh, that actor is a French actor who is in. Uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, C- City of Lost Children. He's totally in that movie. I'm. You know what? I thought so. I thought I'd seen him before. Oh, that would be why. Yeah, that would be why. Uh, uh, Juno kept coming to mind, probably. Well, yeah, and also I think that it's supposed to. I think that it's. I think you're right on. Uh, besides just the casting, it's a good. It's a good analogy. But um, so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know where to begin. What's funny though is uh, there was a re- there's a reference to the unknown in Cemetery Man. It's a. It's basically a more pointed flip of the twist in the unknown. And I, which I would have never in a million years caught on to if I didn't watch them on the same day. Um, but there's the scene in Cemetery Man where basically 
he's with a woman who is terribly afraid of erections. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, well, I can be with you because you're impotent. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, totally impotent because he wants to be with her. Um, but then he says, oh, the only way I can be impotent with her or the only way I can be with her is if I'm actually impotent. So he gets uh, – he basically gets his dick killed <laughs> off with an injection. Right. And then and then there's this fucking crazy scene where she goes into a fevered monologue about being raped by the mayor but then falling in love with the mayor. Like It's like five plot elements happening in the course of a single scene that wrap up that like storyline, which at that point is like the fifth storyline to occur or right. s- sixth storyline to occur. And that's actually exactly what happens in The Unknown, which is basically um, – uh, Lon Chaney realizes that he'll never have Joan Crawford unless he actually, you know, on, unless on their wedding night she can see that he has no arms. So he blackmails someone and gets them to surgically remove his arms. And then in the interim one, he is getting the surgery done and he's recovering. She overcomes her fear with someone else. And she's like, look, isn't it great? I, I'm not afraid of men's arms anymore. And, you know, the man is wrapping her, his arms around her and she's kissing his hands and stuff. And meanwhile, Lon Chaney is, is standing there without any arms and he's just forcing this maniacal grin, like trying to be happy for her, but fucking furious. And that <laughs> scene is that, like, that scene's a direct reference, like to the point where the scene, if I didn't know that that was an unknown reference, like that scene would just come out of nowhere and I wouldn't know what the fuck that was. Right, um, and it made it made me wonder what other references were in the movie that I wasn't getting. You know, uh, it's uh, the the big the the it was written by the guy who did uh, the comic book uh, uh, Dylan Dog, okay. which got made into a really crummy uh, Brendan Routh movie not too long ago, um, and so. The only real references I can think of is the fact that they hire uh, um, Rupert Everett to play the lead is that the Dylan Dog comic artist had based the look of Dylan Dog on Rupert Everett. Uh huh. So that was kind of an in joke in a way. And there's a thing where the woman keeps calling him an engineer. Yeah. I think. That's in reference to, in Deep Red, uh, the guy's mom keeps referring to the pianist as different things that he's not, like an engineer. But I don't know. It could just be something weird. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a puzzling movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know if I were to show this to someone if they would, it, like, I don't know how accessible this would be if only because, like, the pace of it is weird. It's almost paced as if, like you said, like an anthology film or like it's almost pays like trick or treat. Like it's an anthology film of all of these stories that are interconnected, except they all have the same lead. It's like if Pulp Fiction yeah, had, yeah, was actually, about yeah. one character. Yeah. But, and also was a horror movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Cemetery Man's amazing. Um, I really would love to watch it again. It. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, my words fail me. No, it's it's probably top top twenty for me, maybe even top ten favorites. It's up there. Yeah. The only other thing I can say is uh, I caught a midnight screening of John Carpenter's Halloween, um, and 
I was watching it in the context of sitting next to my partner Regina, and Regina had never seen the film, and the film scared the living shit out of Regina. It was like, like every scene that's really great in Halloween when you see it with someone who's never seen it before, and in that con, like you know, it it can be hard sometimes if you're showing someone a movie and they're just in your living room for them to really invest in it. But when you're in a movie theater. Um, it's easier. So in that context yeah. of just like being sucked in and watching the movie, but also being acutely aware of how the movie was mechanically working on Regina, uh, it it was it was like a whole new viewing. It was incredible. It made me so happy because that movie's <laughs> like like just after the movie ended, and we were just going home. Like it was a okay. Uh, you need to keep all the lights on right now. Because I know at any moment the shape is going to frame that is going to be framed by the doorway, um, or just yeah you know, walk into frame. Oh God, yeah, Halloween. Uh, I don't know if anyone of you guys have ever heard of it. It's it's sort of this like indie movie. <laughs> it didn't have a lot of uh, market. It's, you know, it's not like a major studio film, but uh, I, I think it's I think it's a classic. If if you ask me, yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it's definitely. A- it's do it's either, had a couple DVD releases. Do either of you have an experience like that though, where like you show a movie that is just you just know, like you just know it like like the ground, like the back of your hand, like that's like you just exhale that movie. It's so part of you, and then you show it to someone who's never seen it before, and then suddenly it's a different experience. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I I think it's not a horror film, but. Seeing somebody watch the original Planet of the Apes for the first time, if there are, you know, I've only done it a couple of times because everybody's seen it just about, but watching someone see that and the and the, the ending, it's like watching it for the first time all over again. That's I good. think, for me, I've Dawn of the Dead is one that's interesting because I show it to people and they are prepared for a horror movie and they get a sort of dramedy instead and it's it's always interesting to watch people actually enjoy it who are not intending on enjoying it but the latest one was i showed my girlfriend christine i showed her they live and she almost always has her computer on her lap doing something else while we're watching a movie right i could tell they live had her when the uh the uh sunglasses scene first comes up and she closed and put away her laptop (laughs) (laughs) that's when i was like oh okay (laughs) That is a yeah, that's, she, that's a very modern signifier. The yes. close the laptop. That's yes. I, I've I've definitely experienced because you know uh, me and Regina live together and I watch a ton of movies that are on on the TV. But you know uh, I'm preparing for a podcast. Regina isn't going to be a part of, and Regina only has a nominal interest in you know these films or something. And that's always the moment where it's like, okay, all right, the laptop is closed. That's a that's a fight. Is there really are there really people who don't know how Planet of the Apes and I've never seen Planet of the Apes. All I know about it is the ending. <laughs> well, yeah, I, that's what I say. I've only watched it with two other people who didn't know the ending. Um, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like Soylent Green. The ending is already a punchline before you've before you actually see the film. Right. So. But there are people out there. I hope to find more. But <laughs> sure. But but it, no, it's fun. I mean that one, and then another horror film I love that gets knocked a bit. I think is um, I think it was in 
2007 or 2008, The Strangers with Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love showing that to people, too. Oh, that's a good one. I, I that, was, that was, honestly, I don't get to watch a lot of horror movies in theaters these days. Um, a, because a lot of major studio horror movies look terrible. Uh, like, just are <laughs> terrible. And just, I don't get out to the theaters very much, so I tend to prioritize, you know, uh, more independent films and stuff like that. Um, but The Strangers is one of the last really strong memories I have of seeing uh, a movie relatively soon after a horror movie relatively soon after it came out um, with a crowded theater and just fucking losing my mind because it was so much fun and it was so scary. Yeah. I, yeah, uh, I, I like that movie a lot too. That one's fun. And then of all films, Tales from the Crypt Bordello of Blood. I uh, saw in a movie full of a movie theater, and I don't know how they got in, but the, it was uh, me and maybe two dozen teenage girls in there, and they were just flipping out at every at every scare, and it was it was just fun to sit and sort of live vicariously through them because I thought it was just kind of a mediocre movie, but but watching them freak out was fun. Yeah, that's always well, that, good. If we're just talking about theatrical experiences like that, my single best one is still. Uh, Final Destination 2 and it was only playing way out as I'm in the Twin Cities and we had to go out to an area that is uh, primarily African American and it was me and my girlfriend at the time and uh, behind us a bunch of like again yeah like you said you don't know how they got in they couldn't have been more than 15 year old uh, black kids and then a bunch of uh, a couple of of kind of middle aged women in front of us (laughs) <laughs> and it was every kill was just oh damn did you see that and it got to the point where they were tapping me on the shoulder a total stranger adult and saying did you see that shit that just happened and then women in front of us screaming just on cue every single time just perfectly it was i would you know what i, I think can never that has i can to... never recreate it you know i think <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I've I've been sort of on the lookout for because I did a I did a uh, commentary with my mom for the original Friday Thirteenth where I sort of explain slasher movies to her and she had never obviously never seen the movie she never watches horror movies at all I've been on the lookout for like another horror movie to watch with my mom that uh, she can get the idea of it even though I'm talking through the whole thing then enough that she will be invested enough that she'll have reactions to it I think Final Destination two. It's a good one because they just come out of nowhere. You can talk over all the plot. Yeah. And then someone dies horribly. And then you can go back to talking. <laughs> sound, that sounds fantastic. Um, Dawn of the Dead is interesting, though. Because, yeah, Dawn of the Dead is definitely... It's it's weird. It was, it was definitely... That was why I didn't really like Dawn of the Dead in high school. Was I wanted it to be Night of the Living Dead. I wanted it to be like a horror movie. Um, and it rarely, it, it kind of, you know, it tries to gross you out. Uh, there's a, in this, Stephen King in, uh, Dance Macabre, he, he, he sort of divide he divides horror into like three separate attempt. Like it can, it can, it can be horror, which is like, it gets under your skin and attacks you sort of existentially or psychologically. It can be terror where it's just. Uh, it doesn't affect you, but it's just the me- the mechanics of how a scare is set up and the- and delivered. Like, it's really Sam effective. Raimi movie. 
and then uh, and then a and then there's the gross out, which is which is just like it's just trying to get a reaction out of you in any way possible. Um, and there's a, there's plenty of the gross out in Dawn of the Dead, but there's really not much of the other two. Right. No, it's really not a horror movie. I don't. I don't know. Uh, it was one that I saw. It was one of the, I, I was so I had such issues with uh, anxiety to, when I was a teenager that I didn't watch horror movies. And as I started to kind of outgrow the anxiety, I started to watch them. And Dawn of the Dead was actually the one that kind of changed my whole. Uh, it, it's like the movie that made me start watching movies in a. Uh, critical way and and wanting to consume as many movies as i could it was like it was the movie that made me realize star wars wasn't my favorite movie anymore yeah was that kind of thing like it was that important to me sure that's a big moment (laughs) i want other people to like it in the same way and i usually try to tell them it's not really a horror movie it's the problem is is there's so many i mean zombie apocalypse is really old hat you know so it kind of lost that appeal well and it's also certainly like now anyone watching Dawn of the Dead a lot of what makes that made that movie interesting in 1978 was sort of the scale of it and right. which now there's a weekly TV show that right. does the same thing and or or the gore of it which now there's a weekly TV show <laughs> which has the same thing, thing. like yeah. with effects by K&B uh which has a Day of the Dead legacy there um, yeah so like there's it, it's it's the kind of movie that you had without proper context. I don't think. I don't. I mean, I'm sure kids who are fans of horror movies, whether or not they actually like uh, Night of the Living Dead, I think there's. <laughs> like me personally, I think that movie is pretty slow, and I think I think a lot of people like that movie for how important it is, rather than enjoy watching it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think I think Dawn of the Dead. It's 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 uh, reputation is such that. Kid, like teenagers will continue to watch it and either you know fall in love with it the way you did or claim to fall in love with it just because it's it's just one of those big pinnacles of horror that's always cited in that top of list and everything. But uh, I don't know if the average person uh, will continue to pick it up and to uh, really uh, think much of it uh, without the context of sort of it being the 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 birthing uh, ground for all of these other things. Yeah. Um, but on that, we should go ahead and talk about uh, George A. Romero. All right. Do you guys want to take a break or you want to just keep going? Uh, you know what? I got to take a break. I am going to preheat the oven for a pizza. All right. Sounds good. And <laughs> I will shove it in my mouth in between discussions. That's going to be exciting. Patrick! Ah! 
George Romero. Uh, so uh, I, want, I want to know real quick, what was the first George Romero movie you each saw? Because in my mind, it, we all saw the same George Romero movie first, but I couldn't be wrong. Um, so it, Definitely Night of Living Dead. Night of Living Dead. Gabe, what about you, James? I think it was Creepshow. Really? Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that was probably the second one I saw. That was on cable a lot. I, I, for me, it was, it was Night of the Living Dead as well. Because I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have cable growing up, so Night of the Living Dead was one of the few modern horror movies that would play on regular TV, um, you know, uncensored, for the most because part. Because they had no copyright. Right. Well, yeah, no, that too. That too. It's a, it was a perennial on television. I was, um, about, uh, I was about six or seven when Creepshow came out, so it was, by the time I was 10 or 11, it was like one of the go-to horror films of my all the kids in my neighborhood. Oh, sure. Let's... I mean, who doesn't love that uh, that fantasy of that poster? I remember the poster in the video box really upsetting me. Oh yeah, like now it looks super innocent, but something about the guy's face riding off really freaked me out. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, if you look at um, so I'm looking at the poster right now, and if you look at the poster, the actual angle, it's like the 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 guy in the in the sort of box office handing the ticket, like the rotting corpse guy. Yes. <laughs> I, who I guess yeah. is the Creepshow mascot. Like he's he doesn't actually do any narrative. Like Creepshow is obviously inspired by the EC comics, but there's no actual like no. hosting involved the way there was on Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror and stuff like that. No. But if you look at the poster, he's looking down. So like the poster is even kind of from a kid's perspective. Like yeah, he's that... re- he's reaching down to give the kid a ticket. Um, That's an interesting observation. I'd never noticed that before, but it is yeah, definitely. Maybe. Well, I mean, the, the whole movie is definitely like trying to the feeling of being a kid reading these comics. I mean, it's about George Romero and Stephen King about what they felt like being a kid reading these comics. Because in 1982, I don't think comics were really like this. No, um, no. I don't think no. They I, had I yet... read comics in 1982. They were all superhero shit. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they there there had not really yet been an EC revival. Uh, so like. But it, it it was sort of Stephen King and George Romero trying to get, it. and also reading Dance Macabre. Like this, uh, e- the EC comics are constantly referenced. Like Stephen King name drops maybe like thirty different individual stories uh, from uh, like Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt and stuff like that. So I I so part of the reason I asked what the first movie you saw is because I I think it's funny how everyone sort of comes around to seeing Night of the Living Dead at some point um, like at a, at a young age because uh, I thought everyone was going to say Night of the Living Dead but the other thing was if you watch if the first movie you saw like so if say the first movie I saw was Night of the Living Dead and the first movie Gabe saw was Monkey Shines and the first movie James saw was Creepshow we'd have very different ideas of what George Romero was as a director yep. absolutely <laughs> yeah uh, if, if, hell, if I saw Dawn of the, if I saw Night of Living Dead and Gabe saw Dawn of the Dead and you saw Day of the Dead and those were all our first <laughs> Romero movies, we'd have very different ideas of who George Romero is as his director. And I gotta yep. say, part of the, I mean, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this podcast, but part of the trouble I had going into this was I was having a lot of trouble sniffing out exactly what it is that makes George Romero George Romero, you know. 
Yeah, that's true because I mean if you if you exclude the of the dead movies, um he 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 is kind of he's you know he makes a lot of horror stuff, but uh, if you look at the dark half, Monkey Shines, Creep Show, is there is there a common denominator there? I don't I don't know. I don't think so other than that they're horror films. That was part of why I, I, I'm going to take responsibility for making this a uh, a no dead films podcast. And that was part of the reason I thought that would be interesting is because there is such a... He's, he's way more than the dead films. Even his bad movies are interesting in that how much they aren't like the dead films. Yeah. I The only... <laughs> other than, you know, obviously the connective tissue that that is the progression of the dead films... To the point where, like, Land of the Dead is just an, a comic book action movie that it makes no pretense of even being anything resembling a horror film. Um, like, Land of the Dead just feels like, other than the fact that it's super violent, like, it could have been any, like, comic book adaptation. Uh, right. Which is why I still really like that movie. It's... I, I think that's one of the, the only one I really feel like I, I'm off the beaten path on is how much I actually like <clears throat> Land of the Dead. But um, and so, the, so there is the sort of that progression where Night of the Living Dead is a very strong horror scenario, um, where it's just it's just a very strong primal idea of, I mean, obviously cannibalism and and the dead rising and the people turning on each other, but also just the the idea of atrophy and of the house eventually is going to get broken into and they can't hold up forever. And like, it's a strong horror scenario. And then as it, as the series went on, you know, it it got less. So, um, it sort of went uh, a path, you know, the biggest jumps probably to Dawn of the dead, but it continued to get a little more idea driven, a little more comic booky, a little more arch, um, and farther away from anything resembling a horror movie. But other than that, like the only the only things I could really connect in his films were that Martin and the Hungry Wives feel like very similar movies. Um and that Night of the Living Dead feels like creep sh- like feels EC inspired, if only because there are so many like crazy Dutch angles in that movie. Like there's yeah. in Night of the Living Dead, there are so many close up Dutch angles of screaming people's faces and stuff that just feel it feels if it weren't for the fact that the movie were so horrific and so nihilistic and dark, like it feels like it almost feels like a comic book adaptation in that way. Um, I mean, the, the, it, it had, it, its tone is nothing like Creep Show or Dawn of the Dead or Land of the Dead or Day of the Dead, but but that style. As much style as the film can have, having such a low budget, like that style feels like comic booky, comic book inspired to me. But other than that, like I couldn't find much connective tissue between well, his films, and I don't know, I don't know. I I think that they kind of go through phases where if you watch, I'm trying to remember what order they released in. Night of the Living Dead was the first, and it feels like really none of his other movies. Um, and I think is, uh, well, nobody saw. Uh, nobody saw there's always vanilla so <laughs> is that is is there any way to see that i guess you could find a vhs rip on a on a torrent site maybe 
That's the only thing I can think of. Okay, so it, it came just, on but DVD at some point it was on VHS. It's not like a totally lost. I, movie. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's on VHS. Yes. So, but but yes, if if you start with the crazies mm-hmm. and you go all the way to Night Riders, those movies have a similar style in the way he tries to shoot without moving cameras and uh, create action through editing. And there's some there's a there's a visual similarity through all those movies. <clears throat> um, that that in the crazies he's like experimenting with it, and it gets to the point where it's almost annoying how many cuts are in that movie, and it fits Martin perfectly. And then Dawn of the Dead and Night Riders is him finally figuring it out. I think Hungry and Wives then, is like that as well. Huh? Uh, season of the Witch, Hungry Wives. Yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah, absolutely. There's um, the, that one fits it fits the profile, and then sometime like around Creep Show and Day of the Dead, those two movies have a much more comic booky look to them. Yeah, and then everything at, yeah, Mikey, Monkey Shines, Two Evil Eyes, Dark Half have this gloss to them that, and Bruiser sort of too have this gloss to them. Well, there's um, always so so after Night of the Living Dead, instead of you know that film he made zero dollars from because it fell into public domain off of someone's stupid mistake, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it was not a successful movie for him, but it was one of the more successful independent horror movies ever at that point. Uh, right. As far as just constantly playing at drive-ins and midnight shows and and across the world and stuff like that. Um. So, so but he didn't follow that up with. Another horror movie. He followed that up with "There's Always Vanilla," the the premise of which, at least just from what I've read on IMDb and Wikipedia, it doesn't sound that far off from the premise of Martin. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I've never seen it either. Um, um, but it's but about it's a young man sort of returning to Pittsburgh and moving in with a, you know, moving in with someone who he has a nebulous connection with, and like it kind of feels like the setup of Martin, and it almost it makes you think like. You know, George Romero, maybe horror wasn't the thing he wanted to get into. No, and I think that's why he kept on making dead movies that are nothing alike. Because that was his way of making... He he was always given money to make another dead movie. So, uh, somebody somewhere was always willing to, to hand him cash to make a zombie movie. And so he could throw in all his anti-Reagan stuff into Dawn, uh, Day of the Dead... And with Dawn of the Dead, he got God knows how many story writing things out of his system because someone was paying him to do it, basically. Uh, and and so I, w- I wanted to talk about Martin because uh, that Martin feels like a, a very much sort of a new Hollywood, absolutely character driven sort of generation gap exploring uh drama film that he it's like it's it feels like he's that basically he got the money for it by it by just selling it as a horror movie and that there was like as if like there was a version of this movie in his head that had no vampire elements and wasn't that dissimilar yeah it it feels like a really early martin scorsese movie rewatching it last night yeah if especially the black and white bits uh, it fe- like uh, it feels like who's that knocking at my door kind of 
is, is a lot of that. It's the Pittsburgh version of, of Scorsese's New York in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's also very inspired by John Cassavetes. Yeah, well, who inspired, yeah, Martin Scorsese, right, right. Uh, I mean, that's, that, was, that was sort of the main take away from uh, Season of the Witch I had was Season of the Witch, it doesn't, um, it involves, I don't know, I, I have, have, you seen, have you seen Season of the Witch, James? I haven't, no. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a fair fan of Season of the Witch. It's, I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's sort of an attempt uh, uh, at a feminist movie that's interesting. Um, and it was also advertised like a horror movie. Exactly. But the horror elements, like, it's, it's even less of a horror movie than Martin. Um, yeah, it's not at all a horror the, movie, really. uh, Though, to be fair, the, one of the most potent things about Season of the Witch is the recurring nightmare the main character has about a man breaking, trying to break into her back door. And it's this sort of, you know, all-purpose uh, metaphor for sort of just how she feels put upon by the world of men, by her sort of husband especially, and um, just how she loses her sense of self. And the way she finds her sense of self again is sort of through taking up witchcraft, Um and it's kind of an interesting movie in that way. It's the acting is like the thing about John Cassavetti's movies is the acting is phenomenal. And if the acting wasn't phenomenal, those movies probably wouldn't be very interesting. And the acting in Season of the Witch is not is per- not phenomenal. <laughs> no, it is. It's not particularly strong at many points. So it's it's certainly not entirely successful. I think the acting in Martin is much better. I think it's. I think it's. I mean, watching it again, I think it's the perfect kind of naturalistic acting. I, I the, the, like. There's an authenticity to it, like um, the fact that Christine Romero uh, is a like a sort of love interest type character that like Hollywood movie would never pick a woman that looks like Christine Romero to play uh, the the cousin. Yeah, and and her boyfriend is. You know the super handsome uh, Tom Savini, <laughs> <laughs> but it, I don't know. It really it, it makes it really charming to me that no, the I movie mean, presents her as as an attractive woman. There's and, one of the things that Martin does that new Hollywood movies, you know, that like that a lot of new Hollywood movies it does better than a lot of new Hollywood movies is get a very authentic local blue collar feeling. Um, yeah, and a lot yeah. of that is the non-movie star leads. You know, at no point does is Jack Nicholson show up. At no point does Bruce Dern show up. Like, uh, the, it's a very it's it's the I wouldn't say the acting is perfectly naturalistic. I mean, especially again because it's so similar to like a John Cassavetes movie. You compare it to sort of the naturalism in a John Cassavetes movie, and it just falls way short. But I think it's very good, uh, and I. And it has it's, that sort of. Um, it, it, it's more that the casting yes. is naturalistic. I think I don't think anybody can read George Romero dialogue in a totally naturalistic <laughs> it's way. It's true. George, George Romero's uh, George Romero is not a, at all a bad writer. I think he is. He's actually, just got a style. I think he's actually very good at crafting interesting stories and exploring themes through the stories. But his dialogue is not his strong point. Um, 
if especially in Martin, it feels like he he well in Dawn of the Dead too. He's building dialogue around a line he thought up that was really good. Like when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. He had that line, and he had to build a scene, uh, a, a scene of dialogue to build into that line. It seems it feels like something he does. I, I I remember uh, I felt that way extremely strongly watching Land of the Dead, and I don't know yes. if Land of the Dead the tone is just not like because the tone Land of the Dead what is that his only major Hollywood movie? Uh, technically, Monkey Shines and Dark Half are Hollywood productions. Monkey Shines was what Orion? Yeah, who mm-hmm. counted at the time? Okay. But- yeah, and that's I, what, I, that's why I was unsure because I I didn't know what, what where Orion stood. Yeah, Orion was like a real. They were like Lionsgate at the time. Okay, <clears throat> but so line. like I don't know if it I don't know if it's just the budget is too big that <laughs> that those lines are no longer charming or what. But like, there's almost every line of dialogue in Land of the Dead is really other than the one line in, in the film that's really 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 great or the one exchange that's really great, which is. Uh, the Samoan, the Samoan bragging about all the stolen cars in Samoa. Yes, <laughs> it's it's incre- It's a really really funny line. Well, the, the main character in Land, I can't remember the actor's name. He's on like the Simon Netflix. Baker. Yeah, Simon Baker's dialogue is almost entirely the kind of stuff that a uh, war veteran would say in a fifties movie. Yeah, it's all like dramatic, like something you say when no one's talking to you. Mm-hmm. kind of dialogue like 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 you say something and you sound good and you look off into the distance yeah but it doesn't have that it doesn't have that sort of it doesn't have a a, a tone that supports it really yeah because it's a comic book movie yeah it and there's also like the recurring joke robert joy or he's like you can look at me and know but like there's there's a couple of like just yeah at humor where it just... his his character kind of sucks i'll give you that yeah <laughs> <laughs> What back to the back to Martin though with the I also thought the setting complemented the the story real well with the the sort of depressed rust belt small town that's in its decline and the youth are all leaving town um and then here's poor Martin comes into this where in the film I I don't think he he sees any other teenagers I think he sees little kids and adults I mean his yeah. cousin's a few years older it- than he is yeah, there's not really any any people. I mean, I guess there's a guy on a motorcycle that says hi to him that maybe is supposed to be around his age, and he and he won't talk to the guy. No, I think that might be the only teenage interaction he has. Yeah, it's no, it's a it's a really good point. Is I mean, the whole idea is sort of about this generation shift, and it's supported in the idea of. Sort of, I mean, in a lot of ways, there's just the there's the uh, married woman that he has an ongoing, eventually sexual relationship with, that you know that is supremely unsatisfied in her life, and ultimately you know commits suicide. That's it's about sort of her not finding satisfaction in her values, but realizing like too late that she can't she can't s- switch over to her character is actually very similar. To the to, to the protagonist in season of the witch, just with a much different ending. Um, yeah, she doesn't find anything to fulfill her the way that the protagonist of season of the witch does. But like, she's dealing with it that way. And then there's of course his uncle who just 
you know, if you view Martin as, uh, if you view Martin as uh, sort of a stand-in for um, the frightening new generation of hippies and um, you know and and post Altamont sort of uh, you know uh, youth who may have gone to Vietnam or have been enchanted by Vietnam and uh, at this point Watergate happened. Uh, Martin seventy six. When did Watergate happen? Seventy eight. Seventy eight. Yeah. Okay. So no, Watergate would not, did not happen. Oh no, no. So Watergate oh. happened at seventy two. Yep. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's so. There's just this sort of disaffected youth, and his uncle sort of views that as just like total fear, like abject terror, as far as like just he must be a supernatural creature from hell. Um. I, well, yeah, and the, the the cityscape, the, the, everybody leaving the city makes that's a good point too because he's he has to come to the city and now he's sort of a prisoner. They don't really. I mean, we only get his uncle's version of why he's there. We don't know what the truth is of why his family has sent him to live with this uncle. As if are they really all these kind of crazy people who think he's a vampire or what? What's, what's the interesting thing about the structure of Martin? Is that a lot of like movies like this? They would sort of start with the status quo, and then they would ease you into the crazier things, and it would slide out of control. Mm-hmm. Where Martin, it starts as just total chaos, where you no idea who this character is, but you know that he just murdered this woman and drank her blood. Um, well, and, and I, what I love about that scene is it's it's our first glimpse into his murder uh, modus operandi. And he fucks it up the first time. He fucks like, it almost even, every time. <laughs> we don't have a base level for how it's supposed to go. It goes wrong every time. It really is just like if it is. It's a great way of establishing your vampire. If this movie is soul is a vampire movie, and people go in expecting a vampire movie, like there is no better way to to tell the audience, look, this isn't Bela Lugosi. This isn't Christopher Lee. Um, This is not a suave creature of the night who has complete control over his and the minds of people around him. This is a total fuck up like that. It's such a great introduction to the character. But that's so you're introduced to the character that way is you just know him as this murderer vampire who's not good at it. No, (laughs) no. And then you don't know who his uncle is. Um, you just know that he meets this old man who's like, "Come now," and you're like, "Oh, is this is this the older vampire? Is this like who's this?" And then like it only slowly dawns on you over the next like ten minutes or so <laughs> that that like the man who met him at the train and said we need to get a different train didn't know that he murdered someone on the uh, previous train that that man's right. related to him that that man suspects he's a vampire but no one believes that man like. The actual situation doesn't dawn on you until like twenty minutes into the movie or something like that. Like it's a really interesting structure. Yeah, yes. it, it it sets up that and, whole. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. And uh, well, also I also like the way that the woman almost overcomes him, and it become he becomes almost whiny about it. Kinda yeah, like <laughs> I'm not gonna hurt you. You know that kind of. He's not even threatening. At his at his worst, when he's literally murdering somebody, he's still not threatening. I wonder how much of that was like obviously just you know the the a lot of this movie, especially later once he begins calling into a nighttime talk show, um, 
is sort of about the tension between the fantasy and the reality. Um, and he has this, I mean, even in that scene right before, you know, right before he kills that woman and everything fucks up horribly, he ha- he has these fantasies slash memories slash delusions because you're not exactly sure which is re- what you're not exactly sure if he's a vampire or not. No, uh, it's ambiguous. Um, but he has these delusions slash fantasies of him being the, this Bela Lugosi vampire, this Christopher Lee vampire, this classic idea of a of a seductive creature of the night. Um, and so a lot of this movie is about the sort of the disconnect between the fantasy and the reality. Um, and I wonder how much of him being pathetic is just to serve that theme. And then how much of it is if he was too competent, would he be too impossible to follow as a protagonist? Like, would he just, it would it just be too distasteful? Um, like, would you, would you be able to keep watching this movie and sympathize with him feeling lost and sad and confused and not connecting to people if he was a super good murderer? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I think one of the most important things about that first scene is you just feel sorry for him, even though he's not the victim. Right. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> Well, he, he he's such a sort of pathetic character that you, you see that... Um, I'm sorry, what's that, James? It, well, I said he, he's such a pathetic character that it's easy to sympathize with him, but it also, it's... I think it's sort of showing the, the audience this old old world versus new world where the, the uh, cousin that uh, is sort of an exaggerated version of the old school, rigid Catholic person... And the young man Martin is just this mixed up kid, and it's it's exaggerated, I say, because you'd have to almost go back to the Middle Ages to find something comparable to what the the old man sees in the kid. But he's just nowadays he would be a kid who would be, you know, a perfect candidate for some psych meds or something. And and uh, back then, in the in the old world, he's. Um, the only way they can explain it away is demonic possession or vampirism or something like that. So I guess Romero had to keep reminding everybody that he's just a mixed up kid, in my opinion. I'm sorry. I, you were breaking up a lot during that. I didn't get any of that. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> just that uh, he he's a mixed up kid, and... Right. This is this is the the main to me the main angle of the film the main theme of the film is that you have this old almost middle aged middle ages minded uh, old man whose only explanation for a kid as mixed up as Martin is that he's possessed or a vampire or something rather than that he's just a confused and maybe slightly disturbed young man. Yeah. Is that- it's uh, it's yeah it's about the sort of the generation gap, right? And and also just the, I mean, it's exaggerated because, you know, it's nineteen seventy six. We're when we're watching this happen, and the old man is 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 like a middle age is he has like this medieval mindset, and uh, Martin's just a goofy kid who's been driven to extremes by being told he's possessed his whole life. Yeah, that well that's kind of an interesting thing question too is is 
not only I mean, I guess the main the question everybody always asks is if he's a vampire or not. But what what when you've seen the movie like four or five times, you start to wonder if, if you showed it to uh, like actual uh, clinical physician or psychiatrist what they would say Martin's problem is exactly. Like, is he autistic? Is he um? Is he been like? I mean, do we think he's been like beaten into this? Like, it's clear that everybody, all his family members, older family members, think that he's a problem this way. But and then, well, it's weird because then also the movie shows him as actually murdering people, so we don't know how many people he's actually murdered. No, but I, yeah, I've I mean, sh- and those aren't delusions. Those definitely are murders that occur. Right, and and I've I've always taken well, not always, but I've learn to think that he's not a vampire and that he's just disturbed. Yeah, that that was my take on it. Same. Those black and white things are possibly not memories. The more times I see the movie, the more I think they're supposed to be uh, delusions of some kind. That was how I interpreted them, though obviously it's ambiguous. But that was... Well, which is part of the fun. Sure, sure. But that was was definitely where I landed on that was... um, because I mean, even just the way they're shot uh, is so different from the movie. Like it, it really does feel like those images aren't informed by his memory of events. They're informed by his films he saw on TV. Right, right, right. Or even stories his family told him. Sure. Yeah, and and they're shot in a real interesting way. The 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 flashbacks or memories or delusions. The the way they're put together, he. It, it's sort of, there are these anachronisms in there where it looks like, could this be the late 19th century when he said he was born, you know, and he's young? But then they go into the room and there's sort of a modern day sink there. Yeah. So it's interesting that way. And I hadn't actually noticed that until, like, recently, that those anachronisms, but you're absolutely right. It might have been, maybe Maybe they were out of frame on my old VHS copy, I don't know, but uh, it... it, it it adds credence to the idea of them being delusions because he doesn't actually, in his mind, know what the sink would look like in that era or whatever. Right. So, um, I, I'm trying to think of what other... I can't think of other mo- other than, of course, you know, the previously mentioned season of The Witch. I really don't know many movies that operate like this. Um, there are, you know, character-driven horror films. There, there are definitely plenty of films, you know, character-driven films that are about these themes. But I can't think of any other like horror movies from this era that look like this and feel like this and sort of operate like this in these vignettes where there's no real premise, there's no real plot. Um, it's very slack. You get the idea that. You know, these murders are going to keep happening. It's not – there's not like a slowly tightening noose. I mean he he, get, he does get sloppier, but it's it's not as if like the, the, the important part of the story is sort of us worrying about him getting caught. Um, and the ending is super abrupt. Oh my god. The ending is – Yeah. Especially – I mean the reason I don't think he's a vampire is very simply in the traditional vampire myth – the the sucking of the blood and the stalking of the victim and the and the and the seduction of the victim and everything like that is replacing sex like that is just what sex for the vampire is 
Whereas in this, once he is getting sex, uh, like actual sex with people, and though ugh, there, is, there is the implication that he has been committing, also committing acts of necrophilia uh, in addition to drinking the bloods of his victim. Right. Um, but like, the one, he says once he starts getting sex that he no longer uh, you know, that he, that he no longer has those same cravings for blood that he used to. Um, and like, it implies like things are going to turn around for him. And God, it's a weird movie. Cause you're like, Oh man, he's going to get better. But like, you shouldn't like really what you should be saying is, oh, I hope he's you know brought to justice. He's a yes. serial killer. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but you can't help but feel sorry for him. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it ends ironically too, which is a common thread in all almost all of Romero's movies. I guess I guess you're I guess, yeah I guess, it is a pretty pat. It's kind of an ironic ending, but that she he gets blamed for a murder that he actually didn't commit. Is is the the irony of the situation that all those things he did that were wrong, he's never going to get in actually any trouble for. Or, but on the uh, like. And the and you know the way the way it sort of plays out thematically, he gets he gets killed. You know, he gets staked by his uncle in the last scene for a suicide that he is implicated in. Not not because he killed the, the he killed this woman. I mean, the fact that there are those razor blades there, uh, like that she kills herself specifically with razor blades, is of course very pointed because that's how he kills his victims, but. He's still implicated in the fact that he is part of the process that she went through in realizing that you know she didn't want to live any longer and that right. she had nothing in her life. And that moment after they have sex and – and he is just to- – like he is way in over his head. He has no possible way to, con- to console this woman. He doesn't know what happened. He thinks he did it wrong or whatever. And he probably did. He's probably horrible at it. But, like, <laughs> that's not why this woman is crying. And, and you know, and she even says, like, well, that's what I like about you, Martin. You don't have opinions. I Yeah, I don't have opinions. And uh, the other line she says is, you remind me of an old cat I used to have. Yeah. Because he doesn't talk to people for the first half of the movie. He just stares at people. And and he goes, are you worried that you're going to have a baby? And she goes, no, I can't have children. And it's sort of like it just unlocks this sort of – like there's this other story that's been going on that we've only seen tiny glimpses of, of this woman and her unhappiness. And it just really – it's like this depth of pain and suffering that he just can't grasp because he's a fucking kid. Um, and- Did they ever say how old he is? I can't remember. I thought they said he was nineteen. Nineteen, okay, okay. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was about nineteen. Um, so like, you know, if you view this movie as about the generation gap, like her suicide does very much have to do with him, um, and s- sort of her inability to be uh, part of his generation, you know, to have that sort of free, uh, carefree fling, and uh, but like. So it's it's interesting that he gets uh, that it's not it's not the wickedness that that does him in. It's sort of ends up being uh, just the inherent generation gap that does him in. Um, it's which which is ironic in its own way. Yeah, and it's I mean, 
it's sort of a thing throughout, you know, Romero's movies. Romero is the, uh, um, you know, he's the one who made Dawn of the Dead, you know, or he went on to make Dawn of the Dead, you know, the, the big anti-consumerist greed that, you know, recontextualized shoppers as mindless flesh-eating zombies <laughs> set to only one mode, consume, you know, like – it's it's a it's not a subtle uh, it's not a subtle analogy, but it's a really good one. And he has that sort of liberal bent in all of his um, films. Certainly, Night of the Living Dead is also about the old generation and the new generation. Uh, it's amazing. Like Night of the Living Dead, obviously, it's great that you know Ben is a black uh, is played by a black man. But like that movie would play very similarly if it, if he was just a young white man. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been. Lots of documentaries that cover the importance of him being black that I've seen. Yeah, no, I, I know. I, I think it's good that he's you know that he's black too, and it adds a lot of interesting depth and textures and and themes and stuff that wouldn't have played otherwise. But it feels like the upstairs downstairs sort of geographical uh, battle that's going on in Night of the Living Dead is a generational one, um, where there's the conservative man who just. You know, he wants to stay in the basement. He wants to hole up. He doesn't want to take action. He doesn't want to step out of his station to help give anyone a helping hand. And there's the person with the more energy who is, you know, who's trying to be active, who's trying to figure out what's going on. Um, And, like, to me, that is the essential theme of that movie. And it's very similar to Martin. And it's similar. In Hungry Wives, she has sort of relationships with younger people. And important part of that film is the disconnect um, between the protagonist and those younger people who are part of a sort of sexual revolution and a um, and a, a generation that she could not be a part of because she is too old. Uh, so it's it's not a it's not an uncommon theme uh, in Romero's films. Uh, I just it, it's probably explored in a more interesting way in Martin than any of his. I think it's. I think Dawn of the Dead is probably thematically his, like, just most successful satire. Um, but Martin is probably his most interesting movie. Yeah, it's the one where the drama works the best, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. And also, uh, if you think of Night of the Living Dead as a standalone, there were, if there had not been sequels, isn't... Um, part of the ambiguity at the end because Ben is a is black that though aren't the sort of those redneck guys are out there hunting the zombies at the end and you're you're left wondering if he hadn't been black would they have would they have shot him i i always thought that was a bit of ambiguity in there that um was meant to you know stir ideas in the viewer's head is yeah, i think absolutely. the imagery also, of rednecks um, oh, I think imagery of rednecks walking around with rifles and just shooting a shooting a black man without a moment's hesitation and putting him into a fire. I think that is one thing. I don't think it's actually ambiguous whether or not they thought he was a zombie. To me, the I mean that was something I was paying attention to this time around, and to me it felt very clear. Uh, this most recent watch, uh, and it felt very clear to me that they did think he was a zombie. But it is it is sort of broadly more about the image and sort of the ideas that we associate with the events at the end, as opposed to well, literally and, and, did those characters just kill him and think he's a black man and not say anything. 
And the stills over the credits are very evocative of, even though they don't have any actual lynched people. Right. The the way they're burning the bodies, the way that they're staged, it's very similar to... Well, they look like newspaper photographs. Yeah. And and actually, in the um, in the remake, they, they pushed that much further, and they made them lynched, and uh, kind of the rednecks are making fun of these <clears throat> shake zombies that are shaking around, and... That they they went a lot further uh, in that sort of metaphor, which I think is way. It, I don't think Romero always says he um, only hired the best actor. He didn't purposely hire a black actor. So I think he discovered a lot of that stuff while editing the movie. Yeah, I, I mean that doesn't make it any less valid. No, of course not. But uh, but it does it does for me play why like it is part of why for me a lot of the movie plays more about generation than it does inherently about race though seeing a black seeing a, by the way there's a great documentary uh called birth of the dead um and it's a documentary that's literally just about the making of night of the living dead or yeah it's on it's on netflix right yeah birth of the living dead it is on netflix yep. um and for a story that has been told so many times like night of the living Dead's one of the most talked about and overexposed and covered and examined films in the entire you know genre but for for it being about that movie it does an amazing job of just hyper focusing on the details of Night of the Living Dead and there's this great segment of the film where they're showing sort of who the preeminent black actor of the time was and it was Sidney Poitier and he he was sort of defined by his dignity and he's sort of defined by being this noble victim um you know who who you know was friendly to white people and was sort of this shit like 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 his whole the whole premise of Sidney Poitier was like see blacks are just like us because they can be super nice and intelligent and polite uh and and uh referential to uh and uh, up to the white man and stuff, and like it was a very non-threatening sort of integration. Uh, his his sort of persona in Hollywood, um, whereas Ben just slaps a white woman, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like Ben just slaps a white woman, and he just shoots the white man in cold blood. Um, not because the cold, the man is a zombie or even because the man poses immediate threat to him in its self-defense. Like, he just kills him. Which which brings a question to me I wanted to ask you two about Night of the Living Dead. Every time I watch it, I feel less that Ben is the hero. Um, he doesn't I, feel like a heroic character at all. No. And also he's wrong in the end. Yeah. Staying in the basement was the better option. And that's... Yeah, I think... There are no heroes. The, the two sides of the argument are assholes. Yeah. And I think that the two youngest kids that get killed in the explosion, I think they're the only really good people that they're there to help everybody else. But they're, like, too timid to do much. <laughs> right. And, they, and, well, and they're also deferring, which goes to your generational thing, they're deferring to the wisdom of the older people. Yeah. Well, I mean, which they, they might also be take Ben's mistake. side. At certain points, they, they also take Ben's side. Yeah. And, well, and I am counting Ben as an older. person. Oh no, yeah, no, that's true. Ben, he he's younger than I forget the other the man the man with the scuff mark on his head. <laughs> that is so distracting. <laughs> I forget that character's name, but no, you're right. He is older than the kid. 
Um, yeah, I don't feel like the. Um, I mean, Barbara doesn't really have much of a stake in anything. She, she's definitely not the hero. Structurally, it's a oh. fat. It's it's a really interesting. It's a very kind of psycho in, uh, influence gamble. Not not gamble necessarily, but like oh, I, I think it is a gamble where. You're dedicating the first 15 minutes of your movie to a character who's ultimately not your protagonist. Um, that's sort of this sort of – it's almost sort of a – the first 15 minutes of Night of the Living Dead are almost a prologue to the film as opposed to the first part of the film. Yeah. Where this, this woman goes you – know, this timid woman goes through a terrible trauma. She runs for her life and then after she sees – one of the most gruesome corpses in cinema history, she just checks out and then enter protagonist. And now the movie actually starts <laughs> like it doesn't continue to really follow her emotional journey at all. No, she sleeps through most of it or, or not sleeps, but she's catatonic. Gazes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really, that's one of the more interesting things about uh, night of the living dead for me is because those first 15 minutes too are so effective it's also interesting because the actress that plays barbara was supposedly the ringer like she was like the professional actress that they were going to bring in for their movie of mostly uh non-actors and she's by far the worst actor in the whole movie i've always (laughs) really i didn't know that about her yeah, well, and it almost works for the movie. Like, here's the person who's supposed to be in the horror movie. She doesn't know what's going on. She's not going to help you. Let's let's stick with these real people who don't belong in a horror movie and see what they need to do. That's, that's a good point. Um, God, yeah, Night of the Living Dead's weird. <laughs> yeah. all, all of the dead movies, to me, have weird pacing issues. I don't love any of them unabashedly. Um. There's weird moments in, especially Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, where Romero gets just hung up on the minutia of, we got to find boards to board up the house. Well, where do we find the boards? Well, we got to find the nails now. Okay, we got to watch them board up the house. Or like in but, Dawn of the Dead, where it's like, okay, well, if they're going to check out the mall, well, how are they going to get the, all well, the zombies are there? Oh, so they're going to have to distract the zombies over there, and then they have to go back around over here. Okay, well, they're getting stuff. So they have to have come up with a system, right? Okay, so here's the system. We're going to move the trucks. We're going to be two trucks. We're going to be one person as a lookout. Like, <laughs> yeah. One, one yeah. thing. One thing I find real interesting about Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead is how. I mean, I, I guess um, you know. There's that old adage that a movie ought to ought to teach you how to watch it early yeah. on. So you you get an idea of the the pace and the the tone of the film. Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead are really excellent at that. Just the openings they indicate to you how how the world is going to be in the film better than than a lot of films I can think of. Just the chaos of the newsroom scene in Dawn of the Dead and the desolation of the guy shouting hello, hello at the beginning oh, sure. of the Day of the Dead. They're just excellent. Well, and especially compared to, like, you look at Land of the Dead. Land of the Dead does the more traditional thing that most of these kinds of films, whether it's uh, Dawn of the Dead remake or it's I, the I Am Legend remake or even Snowpiercer. Like, the way these films establish their world is a montage of radio clips and sometimes television clips and stuff like that. 
Whereas Dawn of the Dead, you actually are in a television studio and you see no footage of the outside world. And yet you <laughs> totally understand exactly at what point. Like Night of the Living Dead is a very smaller – is much smaller scale. Um, and you see the news footage and you see people reacting. But it, in Night of the Living Dead, it's not implied that the virus has even spread throughout the country yet. Um, it's just sort of – it starts in the East Coast and it sort of is working its way west. Um, mm-hmm. And then – so Dawn of the Dead, which comes ten years later, within the first five minutes of Dawn of the Dead, you know exactly where the, you're picking up. Right, and you see, you know, when they toss the script around, and the the guy with the eye patch is just, you know, imploring the people to to stick together, to hold it together. You can see that it's it's just um, society's deteriorating. Well, and the TV also tells you how much people stopped giving a fuck after a couple months or however long they never really tell you how long it is where that eye patch guy goes from that to just insulting everyone and yeah his yeah. His, his way to solve the problem is just bomb all the cities <laughs> my uh my my I, I love like the one thing like george romero must have brought from personal experience is just the way that tv uh newsroom operates um just yeah. growing you know just uh you know cutting his teeth in pittsburgh television like that that's a that feels like a very well observed setting to start the film and like it's full of stuff like well the camera guy's not paying attention and people are just wander like running into the back and putting bunny ears on people <laughs> like <laughs> right. it's funny like that is how you indicate like oh my god even the people on TV aren't being serious right now like things <laughs> must be really horrible <laughs> like even these even these crew members aren't doing their jobs <laughs> Uh, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Because we did, we didn't want to talk only about the dead movies, um, no. <laughs> but I, I mostly wanted to talk about the, just the themes of Martin, how they sort of are also in Night of the Living Dead and uh, in Season of the Witch slash Hungry Wives. I've, I've realized throughout this episode I've been using the the title Season of the Witch and Hungry Wives interchangeably, and it might confuse some people. They're both. The same the titles. Same, the uh, same movie. <laughs> same movie, different titles. I think there's another one where it's like Harry's Wife or something. Or, Yep. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it was one of those movies. Um, the, 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 the watching Martin, and, and this may be too uh, on the nose and current of me, but the thing I kept on thinking of is uh, what if they remade Martin? Uh, how would they change it? And I started realizing things like instead of calling into a news radio show or a, a talk radio show, he would be making a YouTube channel. <laughs> or he'd right. be on Reddit. On Reddit. And, uh, AMA, I am a vampire. And, and then, well, but then I started to realize that he, he they would totally push the, the kind of uh, nice guy that can't get laid that's pissed off about it and going to go out and kill people angle if they yeah. remade it. Yeah, yeah, he would be a total fedora. <laughs> he would be a fedora guy, a, and he he would be a gamer he would have gate video. Guy. Yeah, he would be a gamergate guy. That was it. Went in the back of my mind, so I was like, "Am I just thinking about this because it's happening right now?" But I, I feel like that that's exactly what they would do with the property if they remade it. And well, that's, I mean, would, that's that's what I mean. That's just any movie that's really well written and captures something real about right. humanity. It could be reacting to a very specific thing, uh, you know, of a, a very. Specific specific sociological thing at the moment but those aren't sociological things that go away they're sociological things that come and mute i mean i watched taxi driver again this year and there's a line 
where uh, where uh, Travis Bickle is like, uh, I can't trust other people, especially women. They're the worst. They're like a union. <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah. like, I was just like, oh man, that's a men right. That's a men's right activist. <laughs> Well, but and would it change like the whole point of Martin's? Well, not the whole point, but one of the points of Martin seems to be to present him as a uh, character, as a protagonist, as a character you want to like. And I imagine if they remade it, they would go the route that most of these movies go now, where he is just slimy, horrible. Yeah, no, you you thing. couldn't like him. You couldn't like him if it was a good contemporary film because. They they wouldn't they wouldn't even try. I don't think. The, I, I don't think it, the the idea of a guy running around killing women. Uh, uh, because he doesn't know how to express himself, you know? It's like... That'd be horrific, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard that that's what... I haven't seen it, but I've heard that the remake they made of Patrick is is a kind of nice guy, can't get laid, really? taking isn't, it out on people. Isn't Patrick about a guy in a coma? Yeah, but he's, you know, he's in a coma and he's really... Uh, he can speak to the nurse through a typewriter and he's really bitchy about women and you should do this for me and i love you and stuff like that yeah. and so somebody i haven't seen it but someone apparently picked up on that for the remake <laughs> comas are the ultimate friend zone yeah <laughs> everyone totally wants friend- to come by your side and leave flowers and talk to you but you're not going to get laid if you're in a never coma. you're never going to get laid that was that was pretty much the last thought i had okay <laughs> other than other than i did remember while i was watching it and I had totally forgotten this, that the Italian version has a goblin score. Really? Ooh. And I'm, I've heard the score outside of the movie, but I've never actually seen it with the score. And it's not a rock score, so I think it probably fits. But at the same time, I, I've seen the Argento cut of Dawn of the Dead and known how much uh, he altered almost everything good about Dawn of the Dead and tried to turn it into an action movie. So I wonder, because like all the advertising for the Italian posters are all the image of him with the fake fangs when he's when he's messing with his uncle. Yeah, that's like the official image for the movie on the Italian posters. Oh wow! So they're <laughs> trying really hard to turn it into an actual. I, I have never movie. seen the Argento cut of Dawn of the Dead. I can't remember. I can't remember what the music in Martin is. Is it? It's it's, it's a lot of it. It sounds like it's a lot of keyboardy kind of. Sad, sad, beatless jazz music. I yeah, guess. yeah. It has that. It. I feel like that was a thing, especially for movies with budgets as low as this one, where the score would just be kind of a a moody jazz. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite uh, Taxi Driver wailing. Like it didn't have. An, I, I can't remember remember any instances of of like wailing uh, saxophones. Well, no, sure. Yeah, and yeah, I don't I've, think. I don't think there's any score during like the infiltration scene. Oh god! Oh yeah! Can I that that first not the first kill, but the first sort of home invasion scene. So at, so when I was doing research for the for the episode, first thing I did was watch the first four dead movies. I still have never seen Diary or Survival of the Dead. I don't really have a lot of interest. Someday I'll see them, but A Survival. I, I would recommend Survival. Diary is terrible. Survival is so, so weird that you might like it. Survival is just like an, an insane movie. I'm sure I, eventually I'll watch them, but uh, they're not. In the, I'm not dying to see no, them. But so no as I was watching, you know, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, my first thought was sort of like, oh wow, George George Romero is kind of terrible 
at staging action. Um, in Dawn of the Dead, like especially during the truck scene, there's just a lot of it's. It, and to be fair, they're they're hard sequences. There's a lot of perspectives. There's a lot of stuff going on. And he had a low budget. And anytime you have people running around and jumping and stuff like that, but it it can be difficult. But like a lot of the action in Dawn of the Dead, especially, is just like it's not very exciting. It's not very good. I don't. I don't personally feel. It, it, it's also his thing about not wanting to move the camera in that era. Like, yeah, that's you can almost really, count yeah, the camera. It really is the stationary camera. He tries that. to create action through edits, mm-hmm. which I've learned to totally like, but is really jarring and weird. It's when it's a gore effect. I love the edits. I love the Tom Savini swings the hat, the machete, and then it goes and then it cuts to the close up of the guy's face. Like I love that sort of abrupt editing when it's sort of highlighting a, a special effects gag. Um, but in general, like it, it doesn't do the action any favors. Mark, that first home invasion scene in Martin went like he, there's that moment of confusion when he springs the door open and she's with an, a, a man who isn't her husband and he wasn't planning that. on two people being there. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, and the husband, the the man's trying to explain. Well, well, this is okay. Yeah, like because he thinks it's her husband. He's trying to talk <laughs> his way out of it. And then Martin does this crazy leap and stabs him with the syringe, and then dives off. And I, and it happens really quickly. And again, it's all done through editing. Um, but then there, the door is closed again, and he doesn't know what he has been injected with, and she doesn't know who Martin. Like, there's such chaos and confusion during that first part. Like, that whole sequence is amazing. It's it really is. great. Cluster, like, the first, the first part is kind of the first kill is also a clusterfuck, but it's kind of all about feeling sorry for him and just how pathetic he is. He can't get this right, and then the second, and then that, but that scene right there is just. It's just this chaos, and you start to worry for him, and you start to worry for them, and he and they're trying to call the police, but he keeps he's on the other phone, and he keeps fucking with them, so they can't dial correctly. Like, like it's it's just totally chaotic and and scary. It's like it is actually scary, or at the very least, it's not scary. It's very tense. Yeah, um, yeah. There's no unknown. Like the problem with Martin is the monster is Martin, so there's it. It can be hard to be scary because. You're not. It's not like some unknown force coming in. It's Martin coming in, and you know Martin. Martin's the weird fuck up who plays with the magician toys at dinner. So it's <laughs> it's not necessarily scary, but it's it's certainly tense. Um, and I, I love that whole sequence, and it goes on so long. It yeah. like I that sort of uh, chaotic action moment is the sort of thing that happens in modern horror, but there it's never allowed to go out that long. I feel. Um, yeah. To, to stretch it out like that. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah. and it's probably the longest scene in the movie. It's true, yeah, because it is a very, uh, a lot of elliptical editing in the movie. It, it jumps from scene to scene rather quickly. Um, yeah, that probably is the longest scene in the movie. But it's a doozy. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a great scene. Um, so you. <laughs> You you, want, you guys want to know what what a weird what's a weird movie? Huh. What Monkey Shines is a weird movie. Oh, this one I had never seen before. I had and I had I had been interested in picking it because uh, it was recommended to me by a friend. And gosh, was it a? 
I have to admit it was a disappointment to me. That I, that friend's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh it, I didn't want to say anything when you guys said that that was going to be other movie we covered. I was I was kind of like, "Oh, crap." You don't <laughs> I like have monkey? to watch Monkey Shines. Again. You don't like Monkey Shines? <laughs> I don't like, like Monkey Shines. I actually enjoyed it more this time for sure. Oh, uh, but I don't like Monkey Shines. Yeah, it's, hey, it's, it's really James, st- describe describe the describe Monkey Shines for us. Your your first time seeing it. Uh let's see. Uh man is paralyzed. Man's brother is a scientist of some sort who almost like fetishistically injects monkeys with some sort of hormone to make them more intelligent. And uh, as one becomes more intelligent, he almost creates a psychic link between the paralyzed man and the monkey. And uh, you... (laughs) You don't know. I mean, you don't root for the monkey, certainly, but you also don't root for the paralyzed man because he—he—he's sort of. Oh, he's getting he's more dick. and more angry. Yeah, and uh, he's not a sympathetic character. And the the saddest part about it is that I just I was just racking my brain as to what what are we going to talk about about this movie because it just it doesn't lend itself to analysis. It's so it's so flat. I, it, it's it's so this time around, like Monkey Shines is just there's it's it's weird and it's weird in ways that other movies aren't weird because the opening like forty five minutes or so of the movie feel like they're part of a Lifetime Network movie about like a, what it's like to be paralyzed. That I have a note that I wrote saying that it feels like a Lifetime movie. <laughs> That's been mixed with a well-funded PETA propaganda piece <laughs> that is eventually overwhelmed by a dumb horror movie. Yeah. It's, it, it's almost as if it like, and I, I have no idea how this movie was made. I didn't do any research into this. So this is total bullshit. But the way it felt watching it is that George Romero had the last part of the movie in mind, which is a quadriplegic battling his helper monkey because that is just like that it, it feels like that's a segment that he had to leave off of creep show like that is just pure ec horror uh it's it's totally like a just a great premise for a 22 minute anthology horror television episode or something yeah um so it felt like in order to get that and to do it right he had to have actual monkeys so he had to have you know, help from the people who train helper monkeys. And then it felt like they were like, well, you have to tell the whole story. We're not just going to let you make this creepy, (laughs) weird exploitation movie. So it just feels like he pasted his original intention, which is the, the batshit insane last 30 minutes of monkey shines onto the first hour. Uh, well actually it's longer than that because it's a long movie. That's the real problem. Just in general, Romero doesn't make tight movies. Uh, uh, Night Night Riders is. I was kind of hoping we would watch Night Riders just to have you react to how ungodly long Night Riders is. Well, I mean, Night Riders was the movie I was going to watch today after work before we recorded, but it turned out it's, to be it's too ungodly long to watch. It's an un- interesting movie, but it is so long, and the last forty minutes serve 
so little purpose. It's so strange. I, but. I'm probably going to – I usually, once I've recorded an episode, I don't go back and fill in gaps that I couldn't get to in time because I am just – I'm tuckered out on that director and I need to move on to the next one and et cetera. I want to go back and rewatch Knight Rider sometime this year because in my mind, only seeing the poster um, and a basic premise of it being about medieval reenactments, I always assumed that it was an Army of Darkness thing where they go back in time and it's this action horror movie. Nope. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not at all. But, like, I didn't know that. And then I did more research into it this this time around, and I realized, like, oh, this is actually the drama that that Romero kept wanting to make. And it's about a thing that must be close to Romero's heart, which is sort of about this group that works together. Like, I imagine a lot of the people who work on his independent films from Pittsburgh, like, felt like it feels like this is a very personal, uh, important movie for him. It's, it's an elongated uh, uh, metaphor for how much he hates Hollywood, basically. Uh, that's and that that works on me. I mean, if you want to talk about elongated metaphors and how much the artist makes Hollywood, John Cassavetes' uh, death of a Chinese killing of a Chinese bookie is his is my personal favorite film of his, and that's a that is about the exact same thing. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's fantastic. So I mean, I'm not expecting Night Rider. And, and this one, that. you you get all these actors. If you, part okay, I, I, we're. I'll get back to Monkey Shines in a second. Sure, sure. Part of the God, fun forbid, of, uh, God forbid we leave Monkey Shines behind. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the fun of, of Night Riders, for me, is being a fan of Martin and the Dead movies, is seeing all these actors in a totally different context. Like John uh, Amplass, I think is, I can't remember, the guy who plays Martin. Yeah, that's his he name. Pl- he, he plays a mime in the, in the thing. He has no lines the whole movie. He has a white face, and he just does mimey things. And like uh, uh, the guy, uh, the the short guy from Dawn of the Dead, he doesn't have hardly any lines either. He's just one of the guys that starts hanging out with uh, Tom Zavini, who is the lead. <laughs> like there's a movie where Tom Zavini is the lead, and there's basically no gore effects in the entire film. I, it's you know, you know fascinating. It's funny. I went back, I rewatched um, the three. Tom Savini went on Letterman. Uh, back when Letterman was on Late Night uh, on uh, NBC. Um, he went on like three different times over the course of the 80s. And they have – And uh, have you guys seen these segments? No, I've never – I didn't no. know they were even available. Okay, yeah. They're on YouTube. Um, they have the greatest relationship ever, which is David Letterman hates horror movies and is afraid that all of these, all of these gags are going to blow up and injure him. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Savini, because Tom Savini, he usually, when he walks into a room, he's king shit, because when he walks into a room, it's full of makeup dorks who are yeah. fucking worshipping at his feet. I mean, maybe not in the 80s at this point, so maybe he's just more soft-spoken. But, like, Tom Savini is now on national television with David Letterman, so he's very soft-spoken. He's very, And, you know, he has that Tom Savini, very articulate, very matter-of-fact way of explaining things. Um, yeah. And and Tom Savini sort of gets their dynamic, and Tom Savini plays the perfect foil to David Letterman, which is, well, no, 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 this is perfectly safe. No, it's calm. Like, he doesn't try to sell any of it. He, he'll he show these, you know, these effects and these masks and stuff from, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. You see the you see the head, the head from the kill in the first Texas, the first scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 where the 
chainsaw goes through the guy's head. And, like, you see all these <laughs> horrific prosthetics and stuff. And he's just like, yeah, no, that's from, that's from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Yes, very good. And, like, <laughs> and I was watching this and I was fascinated because, you know, as a dork, you know, of course, the first thing I did when I got the uh, Anchor Bay Day of the Dead DVDs is I put on that second disc and I watched 30 minutes of videotape from, you know, the, from the effects studio where they were building all the stuff with K&B. Or with the people who went on to be KMB. Um, and I just love all that. And I've always loved Tom Savini. But seeing him in that context made me realize, like, he is a capable performer. I mean, you know, he shows up in a lot of things. and But he's like, hey, I'm Tom Savini. Bah! You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, in my head, I was like, you know, I wonder what would happen if Tom Savini was just given straight acting roles. But, like, acting roles that played to his sort of strengths as being a very soft-spoken, articulate guy with a kind of wild look in his eye like i and apparently he is in perks of being a wallflower if you go on imdb and really you, if you go on imdb and you search tom savini it the it says tom savini and then in parentheses actor perks of being a wallflower as if that's it that's what people know tom savini from um you remember when he was on the simpsons i don't remember that that was weird he was, was he himself uh, the yeah, and and the joke was uh, someone said, "Oh, there's uh, something." It was the episode where comic book book guy has a heart attack, uh-huh. and they're like, "Oh, Tom Savini's going to be speaking at the comic book uh, store today." And Marge goes, "Tom Savini, the special effects technician behind Dawn of the Dead and Friday the Thirteenth, I love him," or something <laughs> along those lines. And that's the joke that Marge knows who Tom Savini is, yeah. <laughs> and it's actually a really funny joke. And he ends up giving. The context of the episode is he's hit one of his gags is what gives comic book guy his heart attack. That's pretty good. And then he's not in the rest of the episode. But it's, sure, it's it was so strange. He's such a zealous performer to get a Simpsons episode re- semi recently, not that long ago, maybe ten years ago. I, I it feels like more a recent Simpsons thing, like because Tom yeah. Savini now is just such a he's such a nerd icon. Like he is. <laughs> For certain people, you know, for certain people, he's way above Bruce Campbell, but he is a, he occupies a similar kind of space. Um, so, as a throwaway joke, I can imagine Tom Savini being in a more recent Simpsons episode. But at any rate, like, yeah. So watching that and watching him do this, and oh, it's so good because he he fits Tom he fits uh, David Letterman for these uh, for these like squibs and stuff that apply to the back of his heads and then he has David Letterman stand in front of a white wall so he can pretend to shoot David Letterman and have his brains blow out. So, and, But David Letterman is just convinced that the effect's going to go wrong and it's going to kill him. <laughs> and <laughs> It's really great. I really implore you to go on YouTube and look up Tom Savini, David Letterman. But, um, but uh, so it made me think like, oh yeah, like I wonder what Tom Savini would be like in, in like a movie that was built around that. And lo and behold, he's the lead of Knight Riders, and that's a drama. And it's about a thing that I'm sure Tom Savini can also relate to, having been part of that family-like group that uh, George Romero is writing this film about. And I am, so almost more than anything else in the film, I want to see, see Tom Savini act in this. Yeah, he's, he's not bad. Um, but... <clears throat> Tom Savini also did the also did the uh, effects for Monkey Shines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a couple. 
There's a there's a I mean to me the monkey that plays Ella the the the, the helper monkey in Monkey Shines is a fantastic actor. She is. Well, the monkey the 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 one that caught me this time is when we're introduced to the woman who uh, trains the monkeys. Mm-hmm. She's training a monkey, and that monkey is so concentrated on what it's doing, its tongue is hanging out. <laughs> and I, it became my favorite thing in the entire movie, is this monkey trying to screw a lid on the thing to give her uh, water. Yeah. And its tongue is just hanging out. That's really good. Like Michael Jordan. <laughs> like yeah. Michael Jordan doing a layup. Yes. Awesome. Yes. I, I, um, I think the, the only thing that really excited me about this movie at all was the scene with the parrot or the parakeet or whatever kind of bird that was where he he flies into the room and <laughs> and uh Alan is is stuck there in his bed and he starts landing on his face I mean that that was that was good but the rest of it no it's so uh, funny because it's it's a it's bird a, it's not really going to hurt him but it's like played off like the scariest shit that could possibly yeah, the happen Yeah the the string <laughs> sections going nuts dun, 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 dun. There's a bird his face <laughs> it's gross like it's kind of gross that's really all you can say about a bird on your face especially like a parakeet it's not like a bird from the wild that has disease no. or whatever no. it's not a crow <laughs> what are you, are you telling me you guys don't like what is probably the most graphic uh cunnilingus scene in a mainstream film of the <laughs> 90s oh. i had forgotten about that scene too i had <laughs> i think that's I think fantastic i i legitimately love that like there's a lot of this of that sort of lifetime movie stuff where it's like you ever wondered how a you know, like you ever wondered how a quadriplegic <laughs> bathes himself like like a lot of stuff that just feels like it's informing me stuff but like do you ever wonder how a quadriplegic has sex that is actually something I want answered and that that it, and that that get answered in a love in like a love scene a a really melodramatic. Lifetime movie love scene. Oh, it's real that good. It's real if good. If her she, shirt was closed, she lies, it would be okay for TV. She, she lies him down, and she sits right on his face. It's fantastic. <laughs> when he has a bar above the... Of, no, it's her bed. She has a bar above her bed. <laughs> right, because you, you can stay with me, because I, I have a training room this. in my barn. Yeah, she has, she has this... Is this all set up already? It's not even his house. Yeah. I didn't even think of that before. <laughs> I guess it's a training room, though. That's that's weird. That makes it even weirder. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's and then of course, <laughs> the way that he dispatches Avella. Oh yeah, in, in the only way that a quadriplegic can dispatch of a monkey. I mean, yeah. I mean, George Romero. He wrote himself into a corner. How am I going to have an escalating action scene with a man who can only move hit his body above the neck? Uh, but he bites. He bites that monkey. <laughs> And he swings that monkey around ferociously for maybe 30 seconds. It is so long. <laughs> my, my favorite part of that scene is actually, uh, yeah, who's this, uh, John Pankow? Yeah. Is that his name? The way he keeps saying, go get help. But he says, no, nah, I got this. <laughs> it's like, you need to get help. Oh, no, I got this. It's fine. I can take care. And he keeps messing up until she eventually... Uh, it gives him the shot and knocks him out. But he, like, there's at least four times he messes up capturing her and keeps insisting that he can take care of the problem. It's so good. And then, and then of course, there's a, a, it's almost a, it's almost a scene straight out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in which the monkey is feeding Alan. 
<laughs> the monkey, it's like this weird dinner scene that I guess the food was already made because they don't show the monkey cooking. So, but like the monkey like brings Alan over to this table and the monkey is just like seductively feeding. <laughs> no, well, uh, the thing that got me about it is how serious, I don't know how you say the main actor's name, Baggy or Jason, yeah, Jason Beggy or whatever. Um, he takes the role really seriously, oh, yeah. and when and when he's mad at her when she when she pees on his lap, and he just goes, <laughs> "You fucking bitch," <laughs> <laughs> and it's so serious. Well, it's so serious. I, it's definitely, I think, like he got he and Romero must have had a very long conversation about what this movie was, and like that was an essential part of it. Uh, the other great part is when you know for sure that he's turning evil and that his mental – that his uh, that his little mind meld with the monkey has gone too far is when he goes, who cares? Like when the when the house – when his nurse finds her parakeet murdered in her slipper, <laughs> he goes, who cares? It's a fucking bird. It deserved to die. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, he's so committed to how – angry and the scene where he yells at his mom and she just slapping him because <laughs> yeah. he can't stop her and you think it's just going to be the one slap but then he keeps pushing her so she throws in another like 12 slaps <laughs> <laughs> we're making this sound way more entertaining than it actually it really is. is entertaining i think i think we're making it sound exactly as entertaining i mean we're, we're going over the best moments there's also some dull moments he is really kind of close to – I think it's Eric Freeman is the actor in Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Like he's not that – he's not that jaw-droppingly bad an actor. But but he's like, oh, he's speaking through his teeth. Yeah, he's kind of that, – Yeah, exactly. That's sort of – like that's how – that's what like what to him intensity means. Yes. I, I clench my jaw and everything makes me mad. Yeah. It's and Or just like the – or or like the openings the, – uh, the great opening scene – where it's just like he is loving being able-bodied. Yeah, <laughs> oh does, man, here's he his naked, naked exercise. Yeah, here's his naked <laughs> exercises, and he is so he's such a good ju- he's such a good runner, man. He's just gonna fill a backpack full of fucking bricks and bricks. Run. <laughs> but I, okay, so I don't think this movie is just a so bad it's good movie. Like I don't think it's a perfectly fun. You know, like I, I, I don't think it's a, like a perfect piece of camp, and that it's equally entertaining throughout its entire length. But I do think that this is Romero knowingly sort of playing again in this sort of easy field. And you know, as someone who is a big fan of Creepshow, I like I especially get a kick out of the ending. But I do think the whole thing is Romero having a lot of fun, and I, I always have a lot of fun with this movie. Well, I was so. Just do you want to know the real story now? Oh, go ahead, James. Go ahead. I, I was just saying I was thoroughly disappointed. I, <laughs> I didn't enjoy it much at all. So, okay. So the real story is this is Romero's first studio movie. And it's one of his, I think it's his first movie he ever did for hire. And it's based on a book. It's not an original screenplay. Oh, wow. And it was after a long line. He had, like, I, I have a, I, I have a book on, uh, with, interviews with him and i was rereading it for this podcast and i realized i didn't have to because all his interviews are about how much he hates the hollywood system sure (laughs) he has like these great 
things like like because it's all different eras of his career these interviews and so there's one where he's talking about how bad hollywood movies are and he says you know i admire uh steven spielberg's uh, 1941 on a craft level, but it's a big bag of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he just says stuff like this. And so um, if you collected uh, stuff like uh, Fangoria magazine, for years there was, uh, I think maybe even more than Toby Hooper, George Romero is more almost more famous for the movies he didn't make because he had some sort of studio kerfuffle. And and so he was originally going to do Salem's Lot, and that fell apart. He was going to do The Stand, and that fell apart. Then he was going to do World of Worlds, and that fell apart. And he was going to reboot The Mummy around the... I think it was around the same time The Mummy actually got rebooted. And they were thinking of doing a horror movie instead of a big adventure movie. But the movie he dropped to do Monkey Shines because he couldn't get funding or whatever was Pet Cemetery. Really? Oh. And he had done a whole bunch of, of pre, you know, stuff on Pet Cemetery because him and King were so close. King basically went to him for all his adaptations for a while there. Well, sure. And he didn't actually pull one off until Dark Half, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, other than Creep Show, which doesn't really count since that's you know original. It's not, yeah, it's an original screenplay, but. But so he uh, Monkey Shines. He basically. It was one of the only times in his career where he has had to deal with the studio and has had to take notes from a studio and had to have one of his movies preview screened. And so it was a pretty... Uh, from all the interviews I read, it sounded like it was a shitty experience all around for him. And he didn't enjoy it. He didn't, didn't like and he didn't like the way um, he was like hampered by things. But I guess he liked the actors, which, you know, there's other than the lead, there's some good performance. Steven Root. Steven Root only has like a scene or two, but Steven Root is great. Steve- and, and and Tucci plays the ultimate stand. I mean, like, pre, like that's what he, the character he plays now all the time. But he was young at the time. Well, tu- well, yeah, Tucci now, he plays that sort of role with a lot more interesting notes. Like he yeah. is just playing rich asshole who is shows up in most uh, sort of '80s horror movies? Is there's always rich asshole who's like, well, no, 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 and he's doing it, and he's Stanley Tucci, and you know, one of my favorite actors. He's he's really good at it, but it really wasn't until like later in his career. Maybe it's just because he was able to do more interesting roles, oh, or maybe he just uh, got better as an actor that he was doing asshole roles like that with a lot with a lot more. Uh, with with a lot a lot funnier and a lot subtler and a lot drier, a lot more authority. Yeah. the The only thing that might have worked, if considering how how unhappy he was while making this film, if if that uh, ridiculous Hollywood ending was somehow a lampoon of the Hollywood ending, then, then no, no. Well, that was the thing I was going to come to. Is that oh. was that was mandated? Oh, it was. There was a totally different ending, which he actually describes in one of these interviews that uh, was a sort of to be continued, like the guy, it, he's taken the, this is a really long description, which I'm not going to read, but it sounds, it's basically he goes back and the PETA protesters have gotten way out of hand and everything has fallen apart there and the, the doctor takes the serum and he's putting it in other monkeys. He's figured out how to, how Ella worked and he's putting it in other monkeys and the problem's going to, and he's apparent. He says in the interview that he shot it like creep show, with really right. bright, colorful lights, and that uh, 
the when they did previous screening, one of the things on the card you're supposed to write is your least favorite part, not the part you hated, but least favorite. And the ending was marked by most of the previous screening people as their least favorite part. Mm. So the studio mandated that he do a carry scream, basically. A carry scream, you know. I like that. Jump out. I like that carry moment. It is kind of funny. It's funny because it's so nonsensical. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Most carry kind of moments are evocative in some way. Carries is evocative. Friday Thirteenth is evocative, or it makes logical sense, like a killer that you thought was dead opening their eyes or something like that. But literally, just a monkey barreling <laughs> out of his chest is so nonsensical and crazy and gross. I really, I mean, again, in in the fevered pitch that this movie works best in, uh, I enjoyed it. It's not like you know, it's not great. Uh, shakes on its own, but <laughs> I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you guys uh, don't like monkey shines. I really thought this was going to be a treat. I- <laughs> well, but it is. We had. It's pretty funny. I, it's. I feel like it's it's much more enjoyable to talk about monkey shines than it is to actually sit and watch monkey shines. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I will say that we're definitely cherry picking the great moments that. Maybe add up to, you know, 30 total minutes out of this nearly two-hour film. Um, And there is definitely, like, you know something's wrong when a Romero movie ends with a happy ending. That's I honestly kind of feel the same way about Land of the Dead, where, like, that movie to me doesn't feel like part of the trilogy because that movie has a happy ending. Yeah. Well, I mean, Day, Day of the Dead could be intri- uh, could be interpreted as happy, but to me, that's just like giving up. Dawn of the <laughs> like, Dead. I think it's a, it's actually a lot like Dawn's ending, where they escape to the unknown. Well, in Dawn, or at least in the American version of Dawn, I guess it's different than the Italian version. No, no, it's the same. It's the same. That's the the everybody kills themselves version. Is a it was never actually shot. Okay, so like at the end of the of Dawn. It's ambiguous what's going to happen next to them. Like, they're going to take off again, but eventually they're going to need to land, and they're just going to deal with things that are have a world is slowly getting worse. Whereas Day of the Dead's ending is they decide they're not going to try anymore. They're going to check out. Yeah. And it can, it can be – I mean, it ends with them on the beach. <laughs> they're, in, they're, you know, they're enjoying their last days the best they can. So with it, uh, with uh, uh, what do you call that? Pan – Pandrum music. Yeah. Because that's how you signify beaches. Yeah, the pan flute. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's I think it's certainly not a cheery ending when you think of it as just like they have totally given up on humanity. Like at one point a character has a speech about how the sum total of humanity will mean nothing at all. Like the entire yeah. history of the world is contained in their bunker and it means jack shit. And at the time when you when you're watching it, it kind of feels like this is a very cynical view, but it turns out to be the view of the film. Yeah. Well, and I, but I think that Land of the Dead has the same ending, where they're heading off and they're saying screw it to all the... They, they don't change the... It's arguable that they change the... Uh, no, no, it's not arguable. The heroes don't change the uh, social structure at all. They just leave. And the zombies are the ones who might be changing the social structure because they're the new lower class. It's at the end of the movie. It, it's okay. So you're right, except that the way everything is played 
it feels like uh, again, it feels like a studio film where um, suddenly the the revolutionary who wanted to be leader gets his wish, and it's like, how do you know it's not all going to turn the same thing? And he just sort of smiles and go, we'll see, and it like and just. They sort of give the zombies a final little nod, like they just salute them as they go as they go right yeah. into the sunset. Like it, it has a more optimistic feeling to it. I don't. Th- it doesn't feel the same to me as Dawn or Day of the Dead. Um, but the zombies are going to eat even the poor people. They're going to just kill everybody. So they are kind of ditching humanity. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Like they still have. I, I I honestly can't recall exactly in what state uh, Fiddler's Green or anything is because they're it's pretty much done. The zombies basically the the the, the not so subtle metaphor is the zombies are the new l- lower class and they have taken over. Right, but it's not. But they're not literally the new lower class because they're not integrating into the society. No, they're eating it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I don't well, know. The thing- it feels di- it feels just different to me the way it really does feel like a version of mice and men in which they end up getting the farm. <laughs> or they just like move George, else I mean, to get a I, th- I think uh, Simon Baker and uh, what's his face. I think they are very much a George and Lenny kind of relationship. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with the movie is that those two are not interesting at all. No, I mean, and they have no chemistry at all. Like, the, but for me, for me, the thing that works about Land of the Dead is I really like the zombies, and I know that they're heavy-handed and silly, but I really like the whole idea that the zombies just decide to descend, that they've evolved just enough that they decide to descend on this place, and they have their revolutionary guy who just yells. and yeah. <laughs> it's really, You know what works for me more than anything in that movie, and it is the most obvious metaphor, is um, the whole fireworks thing. Where you distract zombies with fireworks, which is this like uh, uh, sort of like prideful Fourth of July rah rah. This is a way that you distract you distract you distract the lower classes with uh, patriotism, right? And there's that shot where they set off at the end of the movie. They set off like like turn on the sky flowers or whatever they call them, and a zombie looks at them and, and stops looking at them, moves its head down, and makes eye contact with the person. And it's heavy-handed, but to me, that scene is one of the coolest things to come out of any anti-George Bush movie from the entire era. It's like that that one scene was worth a bazillion uh, Fahrenheit 9-11s James, James, how do you feel about Land of the Dead? Um, it's been a while. I, I didn't like it. Um... Gosh, I don't have much to add, I'm afraid, because I saw it when it came out in the theater and sure. saw it once and I just kind of, it just rolled off because I was, it was disappointing to me and um, I never went on to, to uh, Diary of the Dead and then Survival of the Dead to me is just a train wreck. It, but Yeah, sur- Survival is the weird, just insane movie. It's just, it doesn't, it's bizarre. There's There's something about Land of the Dead that is just... For me personally, it's not necessarily makes it a inherently bad movie, but for me personally, the aesthetic of it is so unappealing. Um, the the digital color correction, yes, and the sort I, of 
the the muted colors of it, like it, there are so real. many amazing effects in Land of the Dead, and there's a lot of kind of bullshit CGI squibs and stuff like that. But there's a lot of really great practical effects in Dawn of the Dead, and a lot of crazy kills and stuff. Um, but the way that they're shot. Like, it doesn't look nearly as good as the machete going into the guy's face at the end of Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> and, and I think that's part of it. I just don't think any of Romero's slick-looking movies, which includes Monkey Shines and Dark Half and Bruiser, I, I don't think it works for him. I think he has to shoot rough. Yeah. And I think Land of the Dead, I think part of the problem is it's, it's 235 widescreen. I think that he, I don't think he's done any other scope widescreen movies ever and is this weird way of trying to fill the frame that just looks wrong in a lot of shots interesting i that's not the sort of thing i ever know i can never pick up on aspect ratio it but it's part of what makes it look so flat and weird yeah is is if it was all shot in close more close up and in in a more boxy frame i think it would have worked a lot better but, but I, I, how old were you when, when Land of the Dead came out, Patrick? So that was 2005, so I would have been three – I would have been three years old. I would have been <laughs> – <You're a> little... <laughs> I think I would have been about 18. So part of me thinks that, that part of why Land of the Dead and, – and, and the fact that it has endured for me makes me think maybe I'm wrong here. But for me, at that time in 2005, I was 25 – and I was so furious at the political landscape in the United States. Like, I was at that perfect age where you just hate everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, and like, the perfect age and also just perfect point in history where you had, like, there's always super fucked up stuff going on. But during the Bush administration, you just had a handful of people you could look at and just seethe with hatred towards. And I was old enough to do something about it. But yeah. I couldn't. And it, it just made it. And so, like, now I'm in my 30s. I'm more mellow. And when I was in my teens, I was angry all the time, but I didn't know why, really, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think being 25, a year after Bush was reelected, it, it kind of felt like, 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 it was almost like a propaganda movie. Like, it was almost like exploiting my anger. Sure. And it did it so perfectly and so heavy-handedly. How did you but, feel about V for Vendetta came out, like, the year after, right? And I think I had cool. Or no, that that same I, year, V for Vendetta is two thousand five. And for some reason, maybe because I already liked the zombie movies, it V for Vendetta didn't really do it for me. I remember enjoying it, but I only saw it the one time, as far as I remember. I think my I, favorite thing about V for Vendetta is at the very end they play the Rolling Stones song. <laughs> I was literally just about to say, <laughs> literally just about to say, like I remember thinking V for Vendetta was really important because I walked out hearing street fighting man and being yeah. like and just being pumped and wanting to like change the world yeah <laughs> and yeah, then of course and that fate trickles out so because you're 18 and it's like all right you don't, you can't do shit go away <laughs> but yeah. like but yeah but like that and en- that ending song is so good it is and it and yeah it, that's actually the thing i remember most about the movie i have trouble i remember it God, I'm trying to remember things about. I remember really liking the dialogue, which is already in the comic. I I like the way you Hugo giving Reddit. I remember really enjoying his performance, but I don't remember being pumped. Like I think it's the difference of of, of Viva Vendetta is a movie that tries to uh, create action, where Land of the Dead is is more nihilistic. Yeah, fuck that. 
this is what I think of this bullshit. That's right. right. Rich people are terrible. Blah. You know, it's it's much more just statements after statement, and it doesn't really have any sort of now let's change things. I was it's gonna, really just no angry, angry, angry yeah. over and over again. Yeah. I, I was going to say that Land of the Dead's problem is it doesn't have the charismatic lead, but all of these dead movies have really flat leads. <laughs> like, hey, except for Ken Forey. He's pretty good. No, Ken like Forey's Ken good, Forey. but he's not really... Yeah, he's sort of the second. They really split that movie. Actually. Yeah, Dawn of, Dawn of the Dead. It is it is split. He becomes the lead um, in like the second half or the third act of the movie. But um, yeah, what's her name in uh, Day of the Dead is not very. No, she's sort. Of, she is day. <laughs> she's a perfect example of just like what happens when someone when a man consciously tries to write a strong female character, which it yeah. just ends up being defiant, humorless. <laughs> like yeah like yeah. like ken Forhey can can have all the personality in the world and all those characters in dawn of the dead they can thumb their nose at you know whatever and they can have all the fun in the world but like the second you have like the woman who's the, supposed to be the strong woman she has to be very serious um yeah, it's true and it's it's sort of a perfect example of that and i mean is i god day of the dead's fun day of the dead is day of the dead is bub for me <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bub well, is and, and it, the zombie that isn't just mindless flesh eater. Like any portrayal of zombie where it's kind of cute, sad zombie, it's it's just all bub. I still like uh, Big Daddy. <laughs> Big I da- like that he just he just cries. Everything <laughs> makes him angry, and all he can do is go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, big big that doesn't really do it for me. But again, <laughs> again, for the exact reason you describe it. Yeah, <laughs> I am so sad for my people. That's basically all. His the effects in day, day of the dead are so good, though. I had forgotten entirely, despite despite watching that. Doc- have you watched the Nightmare Factory that can be documentary? Yeah, yeah. It's it's essentially just a promotional film. An ad, but it's a fun one. It's yeah, it's it's a fun, you know, you get to see all the clips and stuff, but yeah, it's just an ad for K&B. But um even despite seeing that uh film and them covering this precise moment in Day of the Dead in the film, uh I had forgotten that in Day of the Dead a guy gets his head torn off and his vocal cords are stretched and his voice gets higher pitched. And it's it's the fucking greatest. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's terrifying. It's really it like makes it painful. Well, that's that's like the one instance where, like, usually Romero's style is he edits to the effect, which is he'll set it up and then it cuts to the close up where the the head explodes, or it cuts to the close up where the machete goes to the guy's face, or right. you know. Um, but like in that one, he's screaming. And he, as they're all attacking him and stuff, and I, and I, and I'm watching it, and I think it's the actor, and then he's getting his head is getting pulled off, and then you think at any moment it's going to cut to the dummy head, but his head just keeps going and going and getting pulled off, and his vocal cords go crazy, and then you realize it was a dummy head all along. It's such yeah. a good, it's such a good effect. Like there's a lot of really good effect, like the guts that spill out of the uh, zombie on the operating table. Yeah, that's probably the most convincing one in the whole movie, actually. That's really... Well, I guess the guy must have been really skinny. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah, it's sort of like the... Uh, it's it's that Tom Savini thing of, uh, oh, I have a friend with a tall forehead, so... <laughs> yeah. 
we'll make this prosthetic and we'll cut off the top of his head. Like, it's taking advantage of weirdness of how people look or whatever. Um, is there any other... I, I, I don't know anything about the dark half. Is the dark... So you said the dark half is kind of slick the way that Monkey Shines is? Yeah, and I was actually... I, I meant to rewatch it last night because it's been a while, but it looks like a Hollywood movie more than his other movies. And I wanted to remember if I liked it. I remember not enjoying it, but I, I, I can't remember it well enough. James? Um, that was one that I, I actually oh. saw on its theatrical release in like 92 or 93. And I was a, um, a real fan of the novel, and I remember being disappointed by the movie. But that's all I remember about it. I haven't revisited it since. So you were dis- you were disappointed? Oh, I'm sorry, I lost you for a second. Yeah, yeah, it was. I was disappointed by it. it. The book is one of my favorite King novels, but but I remember being disappointed by the movie. But I, I'm afraid I don't remember much else. Okay, is yeah, there any? I, do you guys have any other Romero movies you want to I'm, talk? I'm more trying about? to look here. I, I would recommend watching The Crazies just because it's... Yeah, what is... It, does The Crazies have a sociological... I mean, other than the way that all a, movies about society breaking down do, like... Yeah, it's just a society breaking down movie, uh-huh. and it's it's got the same irony where the guy discovers the cure but gets trampled by people before he can administer it. Um, it's a really uh, stark... It, it was made for under a million dollars, so there's kind of like this... You have to kind of marvel at the fact that it looks like a real movie. For, it was made for such cheap, <clears throat> but it is really overcut. It's uh, yeah. I I remember I put that was on Netflix Instant at some point. Um, and yeah, I, just, the, the, and I the, threw oh, it on, and then like five minutes in, I was exhausted, and I was like, I'm not in the mood for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bruiser is terrible, which is too bad because I really like Jason Fleming as an actor, but. It's just it's a nothing movie. It was the only movie he made for a really long time there. Well, um, Jason Fleming, he has no face in this movie, right? He wears a mask for most of it, yeah. It's, it's a movie you put a mask on and it sticks to you. and It's like a revenge uh, kind of fable kind of thing. Um, I mean, it tech- uh, even though Savini directed it, the Night of the Living Dead remake was written by Romero. And so that one's kind of interesting to look at the way they changed it. It's still a pretty scary movie, actually. It was one of the first scary movies I ever saw, come to think of it. The remake? I, yeah, I always avoided scary movies, and that one that one in Phantasm 2 used to play on uh, TV. Um, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Joe, Joe Bob Briggs, Monster Vision. Oh, sure. He played Night of the Living Dead and phantasm has who quite a bit and they really freaked me out i found a i found a good torrent that had old monster vision episodes oh um, good yeah I, I found a couple a couple torrents that had so i've been uh slowly going through those and then i eventually like i wanted the intention was i was going to sit down and i was going to watch it as if it was on television because you know that's the fun i wouldn't have to watch any of the commercials they edit out the commercials but like I would sit down and I'd watch the film as it aired on television, but pretty much without exception, uh, 10 minutes into watching a movie that is like VHS quality, 
because it's because it's off a tape someone recorded of Monster Vision, and it's full screen right. and it's edited for television. I can't do it, and I just end up <laughs> skipping around and watching the Joe Bob Briggs parts. But Joe Bob Briggs is the best. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I guess that's his whole fil- filmography right there. He didn't make that many movies. No. <clears throat> no, he... Uh, I mean, after Dark Half, he's, you know, he, he sort of had a renaissance when he came back with Land of the Dead, but... Other than Bruiser, I can't think of anything after the dark half, and that was a long time ago. Is and I, done, again, is, it was the studio system was so awful for him that he sort of quit. Is this, is he going to make any more like Survival of the Dead was two thousand nine? Is he going to keep doing? Is I think, he done? You know what? You know what's happening now is that his son is making a prequel to Night of the Living Dead. Okay, well. And, and <laughs> fine. Last time someone made a prequel to Night of Living Dead, it was 30th anniversary edition. Yeah, well, and that's what um, the last night, because I think I have him on my Facebooks, and you know, he's an old guy, so he never updates Facebook. But he updated that his son was doing this, and then the next update I saw was, we've heard your complaints, and pr- rest assured, we're going to make sure that it's, you know, like, it sounded like as soon as it was announced, people started saying, no, nobody wants the explanation. Right. <laughs> So, so, and I think it's on a Kickstarter right now. Oh boy, That's weird! I, I don't uh, know why you you do a prequel. I have no idea to a movie that is no all idea. about the the formula and the structure, and not about the story. And there was talk of him making a direct sequel to Land of the Dead about those same characters, and that never came. But which makes me happy because part of the thing I like about those movies is that they are sequels that have no connective tissue and they actually take place in different decades. I like I like that a lot too. It's it it feels like a better way to I mean, you know, obviously a lot of the times filmmakers make sequels to their films, they're just sort of striking while the iron is hot because they don't know when their next job's going to be. So, you can't yeah. really blame a a director for like going ahead and jumping and doing a sequel to their movie or whatever. But if you can <laughs> spread your sequels out across decades, you'll probably find interesting things to say each time, not just because you're reacting to different sociopolitical sort of climates, but also because you're a different person making them um, right, in, right, in a different right. part, of, part of your career. The I remember he was going to make one in the 90s, and – you know, the 90s were like the worst era for horror movies. Sure. Because as people were happy, mostly. Um, but I remember, I vaguely remember him talking about, uh, it, it was going to be, the theme was going to be the zombies weren't scary anymore and they were being treated like homeless people. People were just ignoring them. But I don't know where you really go with that after that. I don't know if the zombies then pulled themselves together and... I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the Night of the Living Dead... Night of the Living Dead remake was the 90s, right? Yeah, so that's about as close as we got. It was 1990. So, so I, the fact that that Night of the Living Dead was remade in the 90s, but there wasn't actually a Romero Living Dead movie, that feels like a pretty good summing up of, uh, <laughs> of 1990s horror. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and the era, of the Clinton era, too. It just doesn't, it's not a particularly... Too much. Uh, too, uh, there's there's not a lot of problems that were big. You know, like you're not going to make a movie about the president having sex with an intern. Sure. It's a zombie movie. I mean, even though I would want to watch that, that would be funny. But 
<laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to like like what's the big thing that happened in the Clinton era that Yeah, like what would it be? It would be it would be basically something along the lines of natural born killers as far as its topics of satire, but it would be about zombies like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. <clears throat> there was a period where he was going to do Resident Evil for a very That's long right. Time. Yeah, when you were mentioning abandoned projects, I knew that he had been signed on to do a Resident Evil movie. And then they didn't like the script he gave. Sony didn't like it. Like, apparently the Resident Evil dude worshipped him. And wanted, like, the guy who made up Resident Evil really wanted to do that. But I guess, I don't know. So, <laughs> Sony, does, Sony uh, in their wisdom, they said, hey, what if we got Paul W. Sanderson to do it? And it sounds like sarcasm, but that actually was wisdom because it made them all the money. Or not all and the money, but it was successful. And they're still making Paul W. Yeah. Uh, he's still George, making them. <laughs> George Romero did a, a Resident Evil movie. There'd be no sequel. <laughs> no, because no. Uh, there'd be no survivors, or or it would be a George Romero studio movie, and it'd be terrible. Yeah, I wouldn't have. It wouldn't have. A, you wouldn't have an entire uh, industry built around Milia uh, Jovovich <laughs> in a red uh, skirt. Their dress, yeah. you know. <laughs> I still haven't seen any of those movies. One of these days, I'm going to sit down. And I'm going to watch them all over the course of like they're, a week. They're so, the first one has its moments, but they are so oddly boring. Even though they're short, action-filled movies, they're boring. It's weird. Like I, you can't put your finger on what's not working here because you're seeing things that you think you want to see, but you're not. It's weird. The, the last one actually wasn't terrible because it it totally dropped all pretense and she's like stuck in a simulation of different cities being attacked by zombies <laughs> like they they're like it, you get to like five story elements before in the in the synopsis before the word zombie comes up yeah it, she, she's like literally just like stuck in a computer program where she has to fight zombies in shanghai and now she has to fight zombies in tokyo and in between she runs through like white halls and shoots a couple zombies it was <laughs> It's kind of just barely a movie, honestly. Yeah. Well, all right. Maybe I won't. Maybe I won't go back through. I I figure. I kind of figured. I said that, but I kind of suspected that if I were to attempt it, I would see two of them, and then and then that would be enough for me. I don't have a lot of patience for that sort of, especially CGI driven, uh, weightless action. Yeah. Yeah. So. But um. Uh. Peter, is there anything else you want to add about George Romero or any of his films? His name is James. James, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, We're, no. We'll I, edit in James. We'll edit in James. We'll edit out the explanation. <laughs> I was, I was scrolling, I was scrolling through the cast list for the Night of the Living Dead remake, and I saw the word Peter. <laughs> Susan. <laughs> no, you know, I don't really have much more to add. I. Um, I, I think Night of the Living Dead is, you know, a classic, and the and the the next two sequels are great, and I I enjoy that that his his other horror films don't have a sort of as you said connecting tissue between them and and can each be taken on its own. But the the later Night of the later Dead films aren't really my bag, and uh, I'm afraid that that's that's kind of seems like he's wrapping up his career on those. 
Well, I mean, there's always the chance that he'll make more Monkey Shines movies. Right. (laughs) Monkey Shines 2. Well, I I have it on good authority that they're remaking Shockma right now. So (laughs) I think that... I saw... Shockma was one of the movies that I was passed out during, but it played at the Music Box of Horrors. Um, It's pretty funny. I talked about it on the last episode, but that is a fucking angry baboon. That is... If you want to... That would make a good double feature, and they're both on Netflix Instant. Shockma yeah. and Monkey Shines. <laughs> or Link, that one with Elizabeth uh, Shue. Yeah, Link. Uh, <laughs> is Link a horror movie? That... Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Kind of... <laughs> and there's also one about the people who get torn apart by baboons, uh, about Kilimanjaro. I can't remember what it's called, though. <laughs> but yeah, Shockma and uh, Monkey Shines, definitely. The, the remake of Monkey Shines would, would have some kind of Ebola thing going on. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they, you know what? I, I I take it back. The only the only studio f- uh, monkey films that are going to be remade are Outbreak. <laughs> Outbreak. I, w- I wonder if that monkey's still alive. I don't know how long monkeys live. <laughs> well, they can get they can get like another monkey, and they can say it's that monkey's son. <laughs> I suppose in classic so, like Hollywood form. Classic Hollywood form is like you're the monkey of the Outbreak. You're the son of the Outbreak monkey. It's your fate. And then the the outbreak the new monkey ha- goes through like a hero's journey where he must find it within himself to spread the hantavirus. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the sequel to Willard was Ben, which is one of the evil rats, kind of is the protagonist. So you could turn the evil creature into the protagonist in the sequel, and put a Michael Jackson song in it. Oh God, a great so, Michael Jackson song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's really, it's a shame. Michael Jackson in the 90s was going through all sorts of strange phases. I don't know how familiar familiar you guys are with Michael Jackson's career, but the 90s was the time when Michael Jackson called up the people in The Simpsons and was like, oh, I want to give Bart a number one hit, and then he wrote Do the Bart Man. (laughs) Yeah. He he apparently approached Sega for the same reason and and was like, oh, I want to do music for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. And so there's a whole – they didn't end up using his music, but there's a whole uncredited like Sonic the Hedgehog 3 soundtrack that was produced and written by Michael Jackson. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. The this, this song Scream is a personal favorite. Yes. I, I honestly love that song. Scream's a good song. And towards the late 90s, uh, yeah, sort of in that Scream era, he was sort of experimenting with like – well, what if I did that intense thing? Like, now that I'm no longer clean-cut and innocent, like, what if I tried to be edgy? And he actually has a couple songs on one of his albums that sounds like a uh, like a Nine Inch Nails song. Wow. Yeah. Like a weird industrial, like, heavy feel to it. So if at some point Michael Jackson decided that he wanted to write the song about Monkey Shines, it wouldn't surprise me. Or Link. You know, oh, speaking of that, I found out, I didn't know this, I found out from the Wikipedia page that Soft Cell wrote a song about Martin. Awesome. I had no wow. idea. I still haven't heard it. It's like, I, I found a link, it's like a 10 minute long song, apparently. You might have to put a link on the Man, those, the page. yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll put, a, I'll throw a link up on the, uh, the show notes. The, those, those English bands were always writing songs about, uh, obscure horror movies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, guys, uh, I think it's about time to wrap it up with our uh, top three Romero films. 
who wants to start? Who's ready? Uh, I am not ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'll 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 say Dawn of the Dead, Martin, and Night of the Living Dead. It's not a very exciting list. But. Sure. I think for me, um, my top three would be Martin, then Night of the Living Dead, uh, and then Dawn of the Dead. I, I, you know, I would have to say Night of the Living Dead is my favorite, and then Martin, and then Creepshow. Yeah, Creepshow. Creepshow's up there. Yeah. Creep. I, oh God, that final segment of, of Creepshow. It would be it would be ridiculous to expect an anthology film for all the segments to live up to that. But in my mind, uh, I always well basically what happens is whenever I watch Creepshow, I get disappointed because in my mind I'm thinking about the final segment with E.G. Marshall, and yeah. and then I watch it, and then there's uh, segments that I don't like nearly as much, and there's a lot of like a lot of most of the film I don't like nearly as much as that, and then I always end up a little disappointed. <laughs> you know, no, I just remembered I actually read the Creepshow comic adaptation before I was ever allowed to see the movie. Yeah? <laughs> is there anything is there is there anything different about it? No, it's actually really close if my if I'm remembering correctly. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly primed more than most comic book adaptations of films. Yeah. Yeah, it's ahead of its time that way. I yeah, suppose. the Creep the Creepshow uh, comic book adaptation is essentially the reverse of of Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or or three hundred for that matter. Sure, sure. I, I didn't I didn't uh get I didn't read I, I was gonna say I didn't get to read the graphic novel three hundred, but <laughs> I don't wanna. I didn't read the no. three hundred. No, they no. Well, um James, Gabe James or Peter? Is it it's Peter, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Peter. James, no. <laughs> James Gillum and Gabe Powers, thank you both for being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. uh, Next episode is going to be a move away from horror, sort of, though we're moving into my personal horror, which is Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, I don't hate Andre Tarkovsky, but I've never been able to successfully watch one of his films, despite despite turning on Solaris no less than six times, uh, renting it from various libraries and... and, uh, and video stores thinking this is going to be the time I finally absorb it all. And, uh, I never get more than 40 minutes in before I'm too bored and I have to turn it off. So we're going to take on that whole director. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Uh, Bill Ackerman's going to be part of it. Um, uh, Gabe, uh, why don't you say again for the audience, uh, where people can find you? Uh, well, dvdactive.com and, uh, someday on, on director's club. I, again, I got ideas. They're floating around. You had like a ca- Catholic horror movies? Yeah, Catholic horror movies is one I started writing. And then I, I'm seriously considering writing a long-form thing. Because it was like, like, is this enough for a book? No. But it's enough for several articles where I just one day realized that so many important horror movies from so many different countries came out in 1960. Really? And I just was like, well, I should just cover each one of those. So what was, there's one year in the '80s that everyone like '81 or something, or yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not much of an '80s fan, really. Really, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I, there's uh, some of my favorite movies are like RoboCop and The Fly and The Thing, but I don't like The Lost Boys. 
I don't like Fright Night very much. I just, I don't have the nostalgia for those movies that a lot of other people have. Sure. But I'm guessing they're talking about 1984, where it was like, like Gremlins and... And then uh, there was that, sh- 13th, that there was the that book chapter. shock that book shock value, which was about sixty eight. Yes, yes. And see, I knew there was already a book about sixty eight. So I was like sixty. You know, you got Psycho, you got House of Usher. They're all very different movies. You have uh, Jigoku from Japan. You have uh, Eyes Without a Face from France. Um, you have Mario Bava's first movie, uh, Black Sunday. That just struck me. That was his first movie? His first movie as as accredited director, yes. Wow. He had done second unit on a lot of uh, sword and sandal movies. That, but, that's um, easily top ten for me, Black Sunday. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, he came out he came out the gate swinging, as mm-hmm. they say. And then he kept and then he and then he against all odds kept swinging. Kept swinging right till he died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds yeah, great. Without ever really being very popular. At that the sounds time. great. We we would love to have you back, Gabe, uh, on the site. Yes, I I, I just gotta for I people who, for people time. who don't know what we're talking about. Gabe wrote a, a column called uh, "Crips and Blood." Blood, uh, but yeah, blood on, and Crips. Uh, blood and Crips. Uh, excuse me on the Directors Club dot com. Which, if you go to the website, there is a link that you can read all of those articles, and they're really good. Uh, Gabe is uh, one of the few people uh, I know who has a really crazy deep knowledge of uh, a lot of obscure cult horror films and without losing his mind and thinking they're all fantastic, Uh, (laughs) but also not like just hating them or being above them. So I, I really, really enjoy your writing. That's why I wanted you on our site. So... Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, James, uh, where can people find you? Um, well, Matt and I are busy with the podcast High and Lowbrow at wherethelongtailends.com. And that's T-A-L-T-A-I-L? yeah. It's something to do with marketing. It's Matt's idea, but it's a, it's one of the more unwieldy uh, URLs I've known. But it's I assumed the- it was a Shell Silverstein thing. Yeah, that's he he he's playing on that and and then just the sort of the the long tail marketing scheme and he explained it to me once but <laughs> <laughs> it's where the long tail ends dot com. All right. I also just remembered I was on the film jive uh, soundtrack of terror thing. Oh my god, I forgot to promote that. Oh my god. So yeah, I should have covered that up front. Uh, film jive, uh, friends of the show. Um, you know, both me and Jim have guested on there a couple of times. They had a Halloween special where they had uh, various film bloggers and podcasters um, send in uh, their favorite pieces of horror music and little introductions. And it is fantastic. It's really good. Uh, I contributed. Uh, Regina contributed. Um, oh, is, is that the... Okay, I honestly didn't know that was the same Regina. Now I know. Yeah, same Regina. The very same. <laughs> um and uh, a lot of people contributed. I learned about uh, a Greek movie called Island of Death, which has oh, God. an amazing song in it called Get the Sword. And that made me so happy to hear it. 
Uh, and I probably listened to it like five more times in a row. <laughs> and Regina's giving me a stink eye right now because Regina hates that song. <laughs> Have you been able to find that movie? It's on YouTube. It's, I haven't watched it. I, like, I only listened to the podcast yesterday. So It's one of those notorious banned movies that just like most of the time you hear a movie's banned and then you watch it and you think that was dumb. I don't understand why it was banned. But this one, it, it it's so offensive on so many levels. It's it not sounded really like it. In his, in his description of the film, it, it sounded really bad. I would like to know what you think of it, if you can find it. I've only watched it the one time. I don't think I would ever watch it again, but it's yeah. like... I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> sure. That's not also called, like, Anthropophagous Beast? No. Is that something different? Anthrop- yeah, that one, uh, Anthropophagus the Beast, is a uh, Italian uh, slasher horror movie that is mostly boring, but it also takes place on a Greek island. Okay. So I, yeah, and uh, it's a guy who's a cannibal who goes around killing people and has one really shocking scene where he pulls a fetus out of a woman and eats it. Oh, which stops being shocking when you notice it's a it's a skinned rabbit. But um, <laughs> and then actually actually a really good ending, like a like a kind of it's Mia Farrow's sister Tisa oh, being sure. chased by this guy for like I don't know twenty minutes and it's the ending is actually pretty good but it's not a very good movie overall but mm. kind of movie I like to watch I suppose hmm. <laughs> yeah I made it onto that um, the film drive special too I uh, oh are you okay. yeah I'm on there too awesome what what piece of music did you introduce uh, the song Fool for a Blonde by I'm going to forget his name now. But it is from the scene where they pick up the hitchhiker in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, so I haven't heard it yet. I so I'm I've I've been listening through and I'm I've maybe like uh 40 minutes left of the podcast. So I haven't heard either you your or Gabe's uh entries. Gabe, what piece of music did you do? Ugh, I make me pronounce it again. Uh Oh Christ! What movie is it uh, from? It's from a uh, City of the Living Dead. Um, basically, because I got the list, you know, uh, and my first instinct was Suspiria, but someone had already picked that, and then I couldn't think of any other Goblin soundtracks that I thought were particularly scary. You know, they're mostly rock soundtracks, and I thought about it. And I'm like, well, I should do Fabio Frizi, who did um, a whole bunch of uh, Fulci's movies. And I th- I listened to that soundtrack, and that's the song that sticks out at me. It's called uh, uh, Il uh, Rialta uh, de Suavi, uh, Suani, Suani hmm. uh, the unreality of sound, is what it, it <laughs> means. Uh, but it's it's this weird like, I, it's a piano piece that has it's a guitar thing, kind of like mimicking like a John Carpenter guitar thing, that then has a piano piece to counter harmony. And it's this dissonant thing that really freaks me out. And then it has this this click clack kind of wet sound that I don't know what it is. That's like makes me think of just how wet the movie is. Sure. So I I chose that one. It's not even the main theme. Sweet. I, I predictably uh, chose Carnival of Souls. Um, but that's you know, I, I wouldn't have picked that. So that's not that predictable. Oh, uh, I. I- <laughs> I I have just been obsessed with Carnival of Souls over the past month or so, <laughs> past like two months. That's pretty much all I talk about, uh, maybe outside of the podcast, but uh, 
definitely in my life. I talk about Carnival of Souls all the time. So that's uh, I chose the music from that. So that's – yeah, yeah. Go to filmjive.wordpress.com. Check that out. Um, yep. And, of course, you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, hey, leave us a iTunes review. It actually helps people, other people, find the podcast. Um, you know, we you, you don't need to stoke our ego, uh, but it does uh, make us more visible to other people browsing um, iTunes. And uh, you know, so if, if you think other people should listen to it, but you don't want to, you know, bother your friends with a, you know, a, a, po- a very niche podcast that often goes over three hours long, uh, see this podcast, then. Uh, you know, that'd be a good way to do it. So, um, yeah, uh, I, uh, thank you both once again. Um, until next time, uh, Jim's not here, but I love you, Jim. Because that's, oh. we're, we're, that's how we're signing off the podcast. We used to say, I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. Because it's, it's really off-putting and weird. But uh, <laughs> and now he's not here. So I'm just talking to a ghost. Well, I mean, he's not a ghost, but you know. Oh no! <laughs> I'm talking. I'm just talking to a phantom. Uh, I'm I'm talking to my lost love, Lenore, uh, <laughs> saying, "I love you, Jim." Ooh, okay. can't whip a mormon kid then you're a real sissy like there's just this weird (laughs) oh man